Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Villalucci Podcast. Honest, uncensored, and unedited discussions about life and everything in it. So sit back, relax, and let's start the show. I'd love to know how he's done it. I want to know what that first meeting was. I've got an idea. Who are you? Nobody. I've got an idea, though. Give me 10 million to start this thing. Yeah. Because I know the questions you have to answer. But do you know what? The hardest thing probably was... The hardest thing was getting that first 10 million of investment. That's what I mean. You've got to say to somebody, look, it's a lot of money and it might not work and we're not going to make any money for a long time. I know. Give me it. And they go, yeah, right. Well, maybe... Maybe who you know is one of those things. Maybe they all do a Faustian pact with the devil. (laughs) <laughs> maybe it's like sort of the bank of satan well, what like, do you, well i don't know exactly what type of uh, you project again? you're talking about who are you <laughs> the devil <laughs> look, at my, look at my beard he, he's my I'm co-host Faust. tom i'm tom his, oh, co- right, right. his co-host so what type of investments are you talking about what type of projects are you talking about no like this the uber thing they say it's not gonna yeah. it's not gonna make money for a long time because it's just buggering everything up you think? I think yeah. it's making money now. No, it? no, it's at a loss. And it will be for a few years. It's just they're relying on the name and the brand right. of what it is. But yeah. it's not actually making any money. But it will. Yeah, but that's the thing. But it's 10 years between when you start the idea, when you implement it, go through everything, blah, blah, blah. Then investment <coughs> comes back. But, it's, but how do you explain that to the investor? <coughs> well, you probably didn't. They probably thought they were going to make a fast return. You don't tell them it's going to make I'm money in 10 sure that, years. No, I'm, no. Not sure, I'm not sure that's the case. Because if they were that disappointed, they would just go, oh, fuck this, I'm off. Yeah. But I, it's, I, I think it's a bit like Genghis Khan. You know, it's, go it's, what go? Yeah, it's just like absolutely raise. You know, just, just annihilate go, go everything. Through one one country after another, annihilate everything. Get everyone pregnant. Well, what I don't understand: what is the difference between Uber and just a, a standard minicab? Not a well, black ease, cab, isn't it? Isn't the it's, ease? It's, it's, it's a global brand, and okay. um, they have uh, you know um, an app that works really well but um halo have just reinvented themselves as i can't remember what it's called now but halo is exactly the same now because you can... the, the difference with halo <coughs> used to be is, is that when you ordered a cab you never got one it's just like stand <laughs> yeah. there so this three okay, it, right. but it, it they, they've um kind of reinvented themselves by copying uber so they're kind of competing with uber back against them now right, yeah. and they're and they're as cheap and that's the big thing is that, is that halo used to be on um cab type costs which are like really expensive you know a cab will cost me 50 quid to get to where i live in ealing uber's 14 quid sure that's why he's not making any money but i think uh the drivers themselves want to understand you can register your car as a cab as a taxi be self-employed as long as you're pulling in you can pull in like about 400 pounds a week and you take that all off on your taxes. So yeah. it pays for for the driver if they're working a lot. Yeah, but it, this... It that, pays for itself. It when pays people for the car. explain those things... But the corporation, I don't know, from what you're no, telling me now. But, but what, the, the, see, what you're explaining sounds like a good model. And on a cursory level, it will sound like it works. But I've talked to a, a, an Uber driver years ago, years ago, uh, about eight, ten months ago, um, who was, used to sit outside my house uh, where I used to go to the gym at like two in the right. morning and when I'd come out he was sat there in the car park and I thought he was a bus driver because he was always sat there by his car and I spoke to him one day and he said oh, I'm an Uber driver blah 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 I didn't really understand how it worked but he was explaining to me he said look when you, you had to have started like if you got in at the start they give you an area and that's yeah. your area and you could pick and choose he said but now 
everyone's got a car in every area and it's the, the areas and times you're having to do is like f- between four and five in the, uh, in the morning to to get anything working and you're in some back hole area it's not like you're in chelsea or kensington yeah. like that it's better it works and better for the customer around for yeah. pennies so it's actually like it works for the customer yes but when there's that now i've seen the adverts where they'll they started doing the thing where okay you haven't got a car well we'll you purchase you a car and you sure. pay us back and now they're doing one car per five people now you share the car yeah. so it's in a weird way it's sort of like a pyramid scheme thing where they just got a million workers who on all of them are barely earning any money yeah. but the cut and the company isn't is raking it in like it should so it's like is this some, some weird thing that's just gonna go poof <laughs> i don't know it's for it's what's surprising it's actually probably the first new company or new corporate idea that actually benefits the customer more than the corporation yeah but um so simon was just telling me that, that, that because they get um, reviewed as well yeah the customer of course yes oh the customers get reviewed by uber yeah they can say my customers shit yeah sure. no I, I have it's like a rating so you know you have a five star well potentially five star rating like the drivers do mm-hmm. and they and they do look at that and they look at whether or not you're a tipper because if sure. you if you build an automatic tip in you know, it's a it's a kind of great. And you just for, they email you and you say yes, you. No, they don't. It's, they don't it's not, it's not that complicated. It's just in the, you go in the app. But what if like five of them turn up? No, they don't. It, it, it's don't. the 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 app the, the app sorts out. Works out. So so it, it puts out the job for tender, and the first one to press, I'll have it. It's right. got it. So, so they have to respond. Them. Okay, yeah. and, right. it, and it looks at the at the, at the nearest cars, right. and, and um, it's it's oh, okay. So they're choosing their job. Yeah, what yeah. they do. Okay. They could look at your, I guess, your profile, your rating as yeah, well. Yeah, good. Nah, I don't. I don't want that cheap ass. <laughs> so okay. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So where are you from? Ah, oh, Simon. Now that's a million pound question. Where do you think Been I'm interviewed. from? Where's the dulcet tones of my voice coming from? Say about. Ah, uh, someone said that to me yesterday. Somebody said, "Say <laughs> us, out and about in a boat." <laughs> Go on then. I just, oh, you did. just did. I just did. Uh, out and about in a boat. I didn't say oot in a boot. boot. It's the beards giving the boot. <laughs> mm-hmm. What else do you want me to say? I kind of got, I did get Canadian vibe off you, but you're not Canadian. No, yes, not I far from it, but huh? not far from it. But yeah, yeah I, I, I'm thinking, I know. Yeah, it's quite what? windy. Seattle. What? No, no, Oregon. no, 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 but they're probably Portland. far. No, no, Midwest. Nebraska. No, not far. Dakota. No. Wyoming. It's just taking no. shotgun blocks. No, 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 no. It's a big country. It's the size of China. Montana. No, you're going for the west. Mid-west. Uh, oh, um, Mid. Missouri. Close, north. Illinois. Yes. Hey, finally. <laughs> but where in Illinois? Oh, well, that's the question. Um, where the, the um, well... You don't sound very Chicago to me. I am very Chicago. Are you? Did South you grow side. up in Chicago? Oh, you did grow yeah, up in Chicago. Yeah, 107th Street, Southside Chicago. In fact, if you heard my real neighborhood accent, I'd probably talk like this. And oh, maybe really? probably think I'm from New Jersey <laughs> or someplace. But yeah, that's a hard say, accent in New They say these stems, those is over there. <laughs> yeah, you guys over there with your Ubers and your your black cabs and all that jive. <laughs> now, I've been Absolutely. to the Hummer factory. What's that? I've been to the Hummer factory. There's a Hummer factory? No, there's, it's not not anymore. They closed it down. And, and I've been to the Synchrotron. Um, What's the Synchrotron? Particle Accelerator near Chicago. Oh, they have one? I had no I idea. Where, in the University of Chicago? Mm, Where they make no, the atomic bomb? It's, uh, it's, it's connected with the research. Because it would probably be near the University of Chicago. Because we, we built the prototype for the, the atomic bomb there. Yeah. Um, is that in Chicago? Was it? Yeah. Oppenheimer. But they called it the 
the Philadelphia Project to throw off the Nazis, but it was actually what was Chicago. The, that was Oppenheimer. The, the, the yeah. biggest um, shark attack there'd been when the USS <laughs> Indianapolis. Chicago. Yes, got the sunk. Indianapolis. Yeah. That's right. And delivering, they were trans- yeah. they're delivering the atomic bomb to the uh, to the Enola Gay that was going to drop was horrific. When you watch, read Japan. the story about it, man, and what was it? Eight hundred people died, God, yeah. and it's basically sat there Karma. in the dark, yeah, in freezing cold, being eaten. That and the reason smiled. why they didn't get picked up is because it was a top secret mission, yeah. so no one else knew yeah. the ship was even out there to even uh, pick up, uh, they even, to they even, even be looking for it or be they, out for they a distress call. And they still did nothing. Yeah, because it was a top secret that, mission. I mean, that's that. Because they would have been pulled out of the water within two or three hours if they had. Yeah. Uh, but been in able the night time, the cold, the yeah. sharks, the yeah. stuff. That I mean, that like I always do that. That happened, man. Like yeah. human beings experience yes. that. That is like. Yeah, amazing oh, oh. how see this is how the podcast works and we but go from more, Chicago to shark attacks you know, in the Pacific so we're speaking amazing. Simon Ludgate now you've done so much I tried to break down the profile that and obviously this is horrific for you to listen to the profile that of yourself but I'm going to make people re- listen to the whole profile because I kept trying to pick chunks of it of what you've done and I thought no sod it make them listen to the whole thing so it's there I want you I to read it read I read no the I want you to read it on the oh, show oh you want me to read yeah because I'm oh. dyslexic I'll, I'll be tripping over myself the whole time the whole thing yes the whole thing they're going to have to oh, know who geez. he is hello my name is Simon yeah a bit I more very you're an actor boy. give it some welly <laughs> Once when I was 12. What is, what is, what is that? It's, it's, your, your it's off your website. He wants Which one? The profile of your website. No, oh, not, dark, not, it's a dark. Shh, not your sexy right, website. Right, go, go for it. I, I, meaning Simon, am an award-winning director, science, survival, and adventure are my main areas of specialism. I'm too slow. Currently on Air Crash Confidential for Discovery, recently I have done Japan's Killer Quake and 100 Days in the Gulf on the Deepwater Horizon BP accident. Oh, Killer Quake for C4 on Haiti and World's Deadliest Places for Nova WGBH. I've also written a book. I've worked on Ways to Save the Planet for Discovery, presented by Jennifer Languel, Basil Singer, and Kevin O'Leary. DIYSOS with Nick Knowles for BBC Bristol and into Alaska for Travel Channel US, hosted by Discovery slash Animal Planet Natural History expert Jeff Corwin. Also, Top Gear for BBC Two and Into the Bermuda Triangle for National Geographic. (laughs) Take that. I've had a great deal of hands-on experience with global warming issues, science in general, geomorphology, wildlife, and engineering. The other side of the coin is I have a background in showbiz, film, and music. I try to bring something new and compelling to all the subjects I deal with and to make television, which is good to look at, as well as thought-provoking and informative. I stay calm under pressure and am used to running multiple crews, cameras, as well as single units under difficult and sometimes dangerous situations in varied conditions. And it should stop there, but it goes on. No, no, no. This is about the most embarrassing five minutes of my life. for you, but do it. Go, Tom. Uh, I've worked under armed escort (laughs) and have been shot at on occasion, but they've missed so far. Added again in Haiti recently with armed guards in tow, which proved to be essential. Well, there you go. I've been filming earthquake programs for 10 years, disaster RUS, with the occasional diversion into things like engineering connections with Richard Hammond for BBC Two. For that, I did North American Wildlife with Jeff Corwin for Travel Channel US Discovery HD and a one-hour special on Kenyan lions. Wow. Also with Jeff for Discovery Channel US. 
I did a season for BBC's Two Top Gear, which was a real buzz and gadgets and stuff for Bravo with zoologist Liz Bonin. I wrote and directed Massive Speed with... Chris Berry for discovery on the history of motorbikes and helicopters. Locations included TT course on the Isle of Man and Dutch Air Force in Holland. I filmed the aftermath of the Pakistani earthquake zone and its impact for Channel 4 and was producer director for Pioneer at National Geographic U.S. History Series Naked Science on the causes of tsunamis Stop. and volcanoes. Stop. Also for Keep the Celador for BBC Two series No Waste Like Home on Eco Issues. Before that, <laughs> I was a producer Producer, motherfucker, director of a documentary for National Geographic TV US on the Bermuda Triangle, filmed on location in Florida, which is fucking hot, let me tell you, including flying the World War II Avenger bomber, and we went as far afield as San Francisco and Vancouver. Plus, I did a second air show on surviving extreme weather for the same strand on lightning and tornadoes filmed in Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Florida. Yahoo! I am experienced in single-camera Factual yeah, interviews and multi-crew debates. I have shot HD, DVCA, DSR, EX7, Digimata, 60mm, 35. I've always feel really excited about the next challenge, adventure, and as every project is unique. Simon Luggett and ladies, yes, all this comes in one fabulous package known to you as Simon Ludgate. Well, that is mental. I mean, that, and you're sitting it like I can't you, believe you look yes. like you've enjoyed Shame life us as all. well. It's not like we've sort of what, you you like what are you doing, wasting your time with us? Jeez, Lord, man, that's amazing. And he's got a new book out, have you not? But we'll and you're that. working on a, a script called right, Edmund the Unready. I have written six screenplays as well. Well, the one I saw on your website was Edmund the Unready. Yeah, there's um, there's that, and uh, the latest one is um, the screenplay of my novel. Gabriel's liar. Ah, stop um, there. We're yes. going to get to those. Yes, see, see. How did you get involved in all that? Um, what, you studied. I, I studied journalism. Um, I went to journalism college uh, and got a job. My first job was editing a ski magazine for a mate, basically, which was like a very small circulation monthly ski magazine, which was my first job out of college. And then I won my second job. In a competition, um, uh, working for Cosmo Cosmopolitan magazine, which was what was the job? Just everything. Um, sub editor, like oh, editing copy. How do you win yeah. the sub editor job? They 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 used to run a thing called Young Journalist of the Year, and um, I think in my year they they hired three people, and um, one of the winners got a job in the fashion department, the other one got a job in features, and I was um, put on the subs desk. Um, you know, subbing copy and writing headlines. and. But where did they pull their, their competitors from? Uh, it's just a national competition. I mean, they may even still do it. I so you know. just submitted piece, works at, pieces that you were working yeah, on? Yeah, um, no, I just, I just wrote some stuff because they, they, they gave you a brief and, you, and, it's, and it said, you know, write 600 words on such sure. and such. So I wrote a whole load oh, of garbage. And but there must have been some sort of still interview process. They can't just go, well, you can yeah. write so you can edit. No, we, we, we went along and met them, Did a, spent a day with the magazine. I mean, it blew my mind because I was like a... You know, I was literally—I literally went to it in a pair of dungar in denim dungarees, and I think I had bare feet. I may have been chewing a straw with it. I might have, yeah. might have had a hassle. I'm not, I'm not sure, but um, 
<laughs> they, for some inexplicable reason, they hired me. So you started off in editing, magazine editing? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's great. And right out to... of journalism college, yeah? Yep. I went to journalism school, too. Oh. Yeah. And my first job was working at a dirty bookstore. Because <laughs> I really thought it was... So I'm not parallel careers, then. Yes. <laughs> I honestly answered Ned in a local paper for um, a news agency. That's how they build themselves. <laughs> And I went to this place. It was like it's like when you went to play for the Santa role. Yeah, seasonal. I went. I called them up and I said, "Yeah, I got a background in journalism and news, and and blah, blah, blah. I just graduated from university. Oh, great! Come on down for an interview." And it's on 79th and uh, Cicero in Chicago, <laughs> which is halfway sort of like towards uh, Midway Airport. And then I went to the place, and it was it was this big brick building next to a motel, and it had. Uh, uh, a sign that said Is it news. Neon? No, it, it, sort of. It was like well, a hotel sign that said news, all sorts. And I went in and realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a dirty bookstore. <laughs> but they were getting away with it because, like, city ordinance or whatever it is, it says you can't actually have a porno shop. So they 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 would claim that eighty percent of their material wasn't porn. That they, but it was dispersed throughout. But that was a load of baloney. But they would actually have. <laughs> Family videos right next to hardcore oh, porn. So you had like Mary Poppins, yeah. <laughs> right? That's so like deep. So nine. has that had any long-term effects on you? I mean, that, that oh, no, they you. fired me after like about a month, two months. <laughs> I worked there. I I was because you actually make good money there because they make most of their money in products, selling products, and you get a little commission on everything that's sold. And and uh, so I was there for about uh, two or three months. I couldn't. I didn't tell my parents. They didn't tell anybody where I was working. Um, and, and I thought, oh man, what if somebody I know walks in? Don't that be funny? But um, yeah, I was there for about three months, and then they fired me when I asked for my commission check. Could you get a commission and everything? And then it was it was run by, let's say, nefarious characters who were running this thing anyway. Uh, and so, you know, some guy with a crooked nose would come in every day and take all the cash out of the till, that sort of thing. Was and, he a boxer? Huh? Was he a boxer? No, he just had a bent nose. It's like something out of a Scorsese film. Did he have a beaded curtain into into his office? (laughs) No, nobody nobody had an office there. Nobody had an office there. But, um, God, I have so many weird stories you can imagine from there. Um, But uh, I was glad that they just just fired me so we don't need you anymore. And they never gave me my commission check, which would have been quite large. Uh, But... I was glad because one of this one idiot I worked with, we were being set up to be robbed, and I knew it. This these two guys came in, and they convinced the security guard, who is armed, to go out with them to help them look under the hood of their car. Oh, what? Because they had engine trouble. Yeah. I'm not joking. Okay. What year is this? This is 1988, and then then another one. <laughs> Came in and asked this guy I was working with, because this is true, how late the gun shop was open, because there was a gun shop about three about three quarters of a mile away. God bless America. And so we asked him how late the gun shop is open. And this moron who I was working with was like, oh, hey, it's like 24 hours, man. You just go in there anytime. And I was like, are you people crazy? Are you are you crazy? And I'm like, well, huh? What? Uh? And I'm like, no, no, no. This, I went home. I said, I don't want to be here for this. I heard um, from a guy who's a film, well, filmmaker, whatever. He said, um, if you walk, because you're talking about dirty companies, mm. he said, if you work for them, editing or filming, 
you often change your name because you don't well, want yeah, to be associated with it. Well, yeah, of course you have to, it. but you get Even a lot of pressure, sure. job. But you get a lot, a lot of editors and such. It's it's work, and so of course they change their name. They have some silly name in the credits. Yeah, but you but shouldn't really. I mean, it's, well, of it's course you do editing. because now it's not as now oh, it's mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And it's the past. It was not. Have you done some? I have a little oh, claim to fame. I, I directed The Lover's Guide. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, right. Yeah, which year? The first one. Oh, it was all bow, 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 bow. Well, it, do you know what? It won about, it won about 12 yeah. awards and it grossed 13 million there pounds. There you go. With, I mean, have... keeping it tasteful. What was the awards for? Um, they were interesting they awards. They went a probie. From, uh, Not dis- a joke, like a, no, the AVA awards. No, it wasn't, it wasn't like a porn awards. Oh, okay. it was, yeah, it was, it was instructional. It was, I mean, we, you know, we got letters from Vickers saying, thank yeah. you so much for helping me. And <laughs> We we were backed by the Terence Higgins Trust, yeah. and it was it was all oh, serious right. stuff. But I mean, we did put up with an all. I mean, I, I, and I must admit, it was quite funny. I mean, we put up with a lot of kind of rib ticking, yeah, sort of, of yeah. you know, like elbowing, sort of like, sure. yeah, you're making four for an half an hour. Um, but um, it won lots of industry awards, and uh, it was. It's I a, can't remember what the. What was it supposed to be, those things? Instructional? Yeah. Yes, they're instructional. Make yeah. you a better lover. Yes. But isn't it one of those things where if you it's need instructions, now. then yeah. <laughs> you forget no, well, it. Well, I told you that Imperial College did a uh, uh, research uh, on whether or not pornography can be used to enhance the relationship. Yeah. And so they separated male and female couples. And they let the men for like a week... Uh, on their own, like, view the type of pornography they would like and women view the type of pornography they would like and see if they could bring elements of that into the bedroom. And what they found was that men prefer, like, hardcore porn and women yes. sort of softcore loving stuff. So all the men learn from the hardcore porn was like, And the women were like, no, 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 no. This is what I was A young girl like you that worked in the, what's this sex shop, the, the, the Ann Summers, she yeah. said, the thing with men and women, the difference, she said, women want to be like beautiful and blah, 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 and silky. When a man buys a woman underwear, he wants her to look like a Bangkok whore. Yeah. Which doesn't, but the women want to look silky right. and not, but the right. man just wants to be a slut. Sure. Yeah. That was the common exactly. sense to that. But what women don't understand is like, what? You, they think, oh, wait, you, you want me to be a whore? You think I'm a slag? It's like, no, right, I, know you're you yeah. I know you're not. I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm just pretending we're pretending i'm taking you out of your normal character right, you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, you yeah. can dress me up as, yeah. dress me up as conan or put you know what i mean put a dr evil yeah. mask on me if you want i don't care and next week for you we'll get the feathers and we'll get the yeah, whatever the- but yeah but yeah women don't kind of get that if there's anyway. one thing i've learned in in 30 years of of working in the media and observing what I've observed is that men and women have absolutely nothing in common. Yeah, yeah. it's two different species. It really is. It's like like and, and pornography. I, it, it's it's a joke now talking about you know making an instructional video for people, but it's just oh, the stuff wasn't available. Yeah, I mean, that's all, right. All there yeah. was those yeah. days was Debbie Does Dallas, and that's, yeah. that yeah. was your lot. And now it's gone completely the other way, where there's you know kids of fourteen are swamped in a sea of internet yeah, porn. And I think actually, I mean, to make a serious note, I think it's actually having a really bad effect on them because mm-hmm. they think that's what relationships well, are yeah. you know they think you're supposed to smack girls on the bum yeah. and then someone over. someone mean, has brought you know. up the uh notion that they should start teaching using it using clips and porn in sex ed classes in secondary school so it's in order to teach children the to, the differentiation between the difference between what is acting important and what is the real thing? Well, they need to because they can't tell the yeah, difference. Yeah, but there's there's a big obviously there's a big block. I mean, they don't you know secondary schools are no oh, no we're not gonna let you be sure. And it's porn the, clips this in is our the school. first generation it's been introduced yeah. to really, so it's, you can't have it at the beginning and fix it at the same time. Because right. I used to work outside clubs. <clears throat> I spoke to somebody before a girl, and she got offended. 
that I was explaining to her what a 13-year-old outside the club that couldn't get into the club yeah. were talking about as a girl, right. which I'm not going to go back into again. Right. I was like, that, they were having that conversation, and she's yeah. 13, and she yeah. was saying what her boyfriend wanted to do, and I was like, holy fuck. But it wasn't like she was saying how shocking it was. She was just saying it, and I thought, God, like we're not going to know what the effects of that are for at least 20 years, like what the, what's actually happening in people's heads if the level is just to do absolutely everything mm-hmm. straight away. Um, I mean, you, you only have to go back one generation, and still you could have marry a virgin sort I th- of thing. I think it's, a, yeah. I think it's a developing. Well, not developing. I think it's a serious problem. Yeah, it's massive. Um, so, getting us back so, on the rails. Yes, your journalism career. Yeah. Yes, Edmund the Unready. So that's not. Um, uh, that is, I assume, about the uh, son of Ethelred the Un. No, is he the son Very of Very good. Ethelred the Unready? Uh, uh, Ethelred the Unready. Yes. He, he had a son called Edmund. Edmund yeah. the Unready, yes. Yeah, he was ready. He just uh, he never Not made it as, as, um, as king. Yes. He was Ethelred's son. Yes. And um, Edmund the Unready was a... Um, it's, it's a buddy movie, actually. Really? It's, yeah, it's about um, two time-traveling um, idiots from the uh, uh, 7th century who find themselves in... In the Midwest, in the 21st century, by go. going through a wormhole, it would be truly unready indeed. And it's yes. about motivation because one one of them goes to um, uh, this this wizard steals all his gold, um, and um, the other guy he steals his daughter. Mm-hmm. So they both have something to find, and they end up in the Midwest in a Midwest sleepy little Midwest town. Plenty of them. And, they probably um, would go very unnoticed. <laughs> There's a lot of folks like that. Well, it's, it's the, the, the kind of the gag about it was um, Edmund um, tries to apply 7th century technology and his experience to the 21st century. Sure. So, you know, his, his, his solution for an argument is to chop guys' heads off. Again, would go rather unnoticed <laughs> yeah. in Didn't, central Illinois. Much of a Wouldn't surprise anyone. Yeah. But by unready, though, was he not ill-advised i thought unread unready really meant ill-advised as opposed to oh, unprepared. Mass- well th- that's the gag is that he's massively ill-advised by um his uh, sidekick who's um this this well he's a very short person probably bordering on um very short yes um uh who's called bleeny uh-huh. as in uh, the uh, the drink and the yeah. uh, and the snack um and he morphs into the body of the local uh Mayor of the town, right? And he gets there in time. The time, space-time continuum kind of warps, and he yeah. gets there six months earlier. So by the time Edmund gets there, he's totally settled in. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. And um, the last thing he wants to do is to see Edmund. So he spends the whole time trying to uh, uh, buddy up to him, but do him in at the same time. So is this is this a book or it's a, a screenplay? It's a script. Screenplay. Oh, screenplay. So were you? planning on getting involved in that at a higher end or is it just are you now just doing that uh well like, would you be t- involved with the film yeah my, int- my intention for everything that i write is to um okay. is to have a stab at directing it but um that's difficult because when you're trying to convince somebody to convince the studio to put several million dollars into something they the first thing they want to do is to put somebody at the helm that they know i mean they sure, sort of start of looking for um you know jj abrams and uh, sure. people like that yeah, or, yeah. Um, michael yeah, bay fun. it needs a fix <laughs> yeah. it needs yeah. giant outer space yeah which I, I i mean i'm fine with that i mean I'd, um you know are you comfortable with like that feeling that you've, you've written something and you've able to 
sell it on, pass it on, and just say, okay, you have to let the, the bird fly over the nest. That's and hard. Be done I, with I, it's not the same I, thing. I think, I think it? it's, you're you, about as comfortable as a surrogate mother. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you feel it's really guilty about it. Yeah, um, you don't like it, but you're doing it for the money. Sure. It reminds me a bit of the uh, the French film, The Visitors. Do you remember from oh, many yeah. years ago? Yeah. Like, that's a great film. What yeah. was that? Time Traveling Nights. Yeah, Time Traveling Nights. French Time yeah, Traveling Yeah, they uh, get transported to the 20th century. But you're not doing it for the money as such, are you? I mean, that must be something you wanted to tell. See, that's my thing. If you want to create something and do it, then... I think money's always a, a very yeah, nice but you're not side doing it benefit. just for of, the cash. No, no. So when you are having to sell it and they go, right, we're going to change this, 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 and this, do you just go, ah, oh, it's nothing to do with me anymore? Or do you still try and hold on to... Well, um, I've done that you know we we've all had to um um make compromises and sit on our hands all the way through our professional careers and you do that in television all the time i mean making television is is a a committee exercise and um everyone has a view when i mean when i started 25 years ago what i thought as a director mattered it doesn't right. it doesn't now i mean no one cares so they, honestly right. they don't not not in documentaries i mean in drama they're all a bit more precious yeah. and a bit you know but even so the people who are paying for it go well i'm paying for it so right. you'll do what i want so that's just get that in from the start know that yeah. it's a committee thing it's not you know, no it's it, it's a committee thing and everything i've ever made has been um made by ultimately by committee i mean like right. you do your best but it, yeah, it's yeah. how does that affect your writing then do you find yourself writing to please that committee because you know it'll get no. passed you know what they go for no no well it's, it's, there's a big difference between writing screenplays for me and, yeah. and writing books and um writing voiceover scripts for tv voiceover scripts for tv is like being a mechanic in a workshop I'm full of analogies. They always work. No, um, it works. It, it's it's like you're just fixing someone's tires for them. Right. You know what you're doing. Yeah. It's a job. You quite like fixing tires, right. but you know yeah. that's what you're doing. And you just, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. Accept yeah. it. You just have to accept Because if you don't, you do what I have done a couple of times, which is to walk out. Which and that amazes people thinking that the system's no going to change. No from. one does that in these days because everyone like needs the money. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. you know, is terrified of getting fired. And it's a it's a big stigma. So so they'll just carry on do, doing ridiculous things because that's what they've right. been told to do. Well, at what stage do you walk out? Or what, what's enough to make you? Um, the at the stage where, um, okay, I mean, take a sort of a fairly typical scenario where, and it's actually it's all part of the same uh, problem. I'd say is that somebody will go off and try and make a film about something and sure. get themselves in a real pickle. I mean, between them as as a production company and the commissioner will keep on rejecting what they've done and it's just like, no, we don't like it. And we don't know why they don't like it. And, yeah. and then, and then they, they, they get some old codger like me in and they say, we can't get the commissioner to sign this off. Do you know why? And then you look at me and go, yeah, because it's really bad <laughs> and you've missed all the beats on it. You've missed right, all the yeah. story, you know, that you haven't followed any kind of narrative with it. There's no, there's no jeopardy. It's just, it's boring and, yeah. it's, complete, and it's completely confusing. And so, so the whole committee can't see that. Uh, no, they can't because they're the problem. Uh-huh. Uh, because that's why it's so bad. Because everyone's gone. Oh, it should. Be. So they kind of keep on changing it. Yeah. It's like it's like going. You know, I'm doing it again. It's like yeah. going to a party and sort of just walking around with a tray, saying, "What do you think of this food?" And we're going, "Move that around a bit." Oh, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they start talking. Too many you know, cooks. They're not involved with it, so they don't have the the overview that a director would have. So right. the, the point that I just kind of go, "Well, <laughs> can't deal with this." Is yeah. that you change it all, you make it good. And it works, and then you give it back to them, and they still they're still kind of because they can't see it, and, yeah. and then they they uh, will then try and change it again to give it to the commission. The commission still won't like mm-hmm. it, 
And what I've done a couple of times is I've sent the programme, the cut, to the commissioner right. on my own and said, here's what I've done. They've gone, yeah, this is what it should be. And then, and then the production company have gone, now the commissioner says he really doesn't like it. And you're, going, you're lying to me because I sent it to him without right, telling, yeah, yeah. You, telling you oh, and God's you're sake. telling me that he doesn't like what I've yeah, done. Yeah, I know yeah, he does. Yeah. Well, she does. But then what would Wait, be the why would, that? Well, why would, what's the value of doing that, of saying that? It's just <laughs> confirming that I'm not an idiot to myself. No, no, no. for them to turn around yeah, and say, oh, actually, the down? commissioner just said we don't, we don't like because that. Because they right? manipulate you and they lie. But what's the benefit? Everyone, everyone, it sounds like a sociopath. But are you generally everyone. a fixer? They call oh, you in to fix well, hello. things? Hello, TV is, has, the, has the highest rate of sociopaths apart yeah, from doctors Yeah, I've heard that from someone it's else, true. actually. I've worked for all of them. But why uh, would that be the case? I'm never going to work in TV again now, am I? Uh, no, but I mean, I've heard that from other people as well. <laughs> I, don't, I have no, no idea why. They, they are they manip- they're they're manipulative. They're, they, it just attracts people like that because they can get away with it. And it's, it's got, much, do got they, much worse. Do they gain from it? Is there something yeah, that they're getting it, it, it feeds their ego. It no, feeds their insecurities. Okay. Um, but is anything being produced? Is it being is, is, is quality coming out of any of that? Well, you tell me. No, I don't watch a lot of TVs that way. I watch documentaries. <laughs> I don't watch right. a lot of uh, well, other, uh, the, TV otherwise. The answer to that question is, you know, in a week of TV that you watch, what do you think is really great? And it's probably going to be the Sky Atlantic drama or the HBO drama yeah. that's coming from the States because it's made by, you know, um, film people. Although half of that's total load of pants. Well, that's anyway. the thing about the Netflix thing. They're just they're, they're letting the ideas come through rather than massively like holding them right. down and creating them. They're just opening the doors a little bit and letting, letting what comes through. But, and it's worked, you know. <clears throat> the, all, the, all the filmmaking you've done... I mean, I don't know where to start. You've done so much, it's difficult to sort of bit. What's been your favourite job that wasn't like a one-day thing, like it's something you worked on? I, th- I think the happiest couple of years for me was doing um, um, Into the West with Jeff Corwin, who's a, a natural history okay. um, sci- sort of scientist-y type presenter, and, um, which we did for um, Discovery. Um, where we travelled, we we, re, we re, recreated the pioneers' um, travels. Trail, yeah, sure. From, from east to west, and, and Do you we know went, the, the ruts are still there. The wagon wheel ruts are still all that kind of thing. Ground. Yeah, they're not. So, so we, we we did the we did it as like a travelogue with lots of scenery, all you know, like um, incredible definition yeah. and lots of wildlife. Sure. I mean, lots of wildlife. So we did all the indigenous wildlife for you know Missouri, Wyoming, Montana. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Oregon, um, Alaska. Alaska you, well, Alaska didn't count. That, yeah. that was another. That was another kind of bubble. Yeah. But um, you've always but had that a was, that was for the animals. Is that what drew you to? It? <laughs> so well, you know, I mean, the, the, what I'm saying is, you like the nature part of that. Yeah. Um, it. I, I. I loved it because by as I discovered when I was doing it, I love being out where I'm not surrounded by people. Sure, right. of course. and I love stunning. Oh, landscape and and it's, it was just um from a um anthropological and natural history point of view both things i'm really interested in it was fantastically sure, um, fun and satisfying to do we just had a ball doing it. like yeah. we were hiring you know we were we, we were it was like sort of being um i don't know like, like so sort of the president you know we sort of, we'd have like a convoy of, of big oh, vehicles yeah. and we'd just like bomb into an airport and like hire a plane or a helicopter or two oh, helicopters yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh and then we'd go to another state and then we'd do some filming and then we'd like have a really great time 
And I was, I was doing it with um, a cameraman called Glenn Evans, who is a bit of a legend amongst in Discovery and, and Nat Geo. And he does all those kind of big, um, um, crazy guys in, out, in the, in, out in the wild. Um, mm-hmm. You'd fit in just fine. Uh-huh, um, with my beard, yeah. Yeah, um, with yeah. icicles in it. You know, he does... Just that um, Discovery series is set in, in McCarthy. I can't remember what it's called, but um, he, he does all those kind of big um, wildlife and um, big scenery shows for, for uh, Discovery. How long were you filming that for? Two years. Who pitches those? Do you pitch those ideas? Or? No, it was that was pitched by the production company I was working for. Um, oh, I see. So you're working for a production company, and then it was just part. Well, of in that in that many... circumstance, they they just hired me. Sort oh, of yeah, said we've yeah. we've we're doing this. Do you want and to? What, do you're, it? you live oh, out yes. there for the two years? No, we you come and go. I mean, you you, you shoot for maybe uh, a month or two months, oh, come okay, back perfect. for a month, stop and do some editing for three months back here, then oh, go back for another right. two or three months. Okay. So you to and fro a lot. So when you did the uh, the deep water uh, horizon doc- documentary, yeah, yeah. Uh, you actually went out there to the. I uh, did. That, that wow. was really, really interesting, and I, I, it was interesting because we had amazing access. Because this sounds crazy, but BP was were the sponsor for the show. Sure. Which. Everything should be wrong about that, but um, were they trying to control it? Were they trying no, to manipulate no, it? No, they they, it? they, um, they were trying to. Uh, give a, a more accurate depiction of what happened. And in no way did they say, we want you to say that it was fine and nothing happened and we did our great job. They didn't say that at all. So was you didn't feel any, didn't was, feel any like pressure a, from them at all? No, it was like a mea culpa thing. But they so, were sort of like hitting themselves over the okay. back with a, with but a did that, Well, their thought is like, we're not in, we, we didn't, it's not really our fault, so it's okay to say it. Or were they just no, genuinely holding they, their hands up? They knew that, it was their fault. Okay. It was their screw up. And they they, think- but they wanted to explain right, exactly right, okay, how that right, screw up so, happened. Yeah. And actually the Deepwater Horizon movie um, yeah. that came out um, yeah. a few months ago, it's very accurate yeah. in, in its beats in the way that, you know, they ignored the warnings with the bentonite mud coming up yeah. and the blowback and the pressure warnings. And they just, you know, ignored it and were told to ignore it. And they'd fired all the clever guys and all the professional, you know, like, um, experienced engineers and they were using sure. kids and they were just doing what they were told and oh, right. the attitude of the BP guys in it which was sort of pretty arrogant and cocky was was right and I, I would say that Deepwater Horizon was a very fair depiction of, of how it worked as well but what we found in without the sort of all the media hysteria and sort of you know showing a, a, the same um, pelican with oil on it which they yeah. used for six <laughs> same poor pelican and that yeah, guy should have been no on money. should have been on repeats I tell you um, we spoke to it, the, th- the, the thing that was a, um, a real turnaround on it. We, we spoke to a lot of the shrimp fishermen and we actually spoke to the, to the guys who were doing it and the guys who weren't working because they're being paid so much money by BP. And they were saying, oh, that, you know, there are no shrimp because they weren't going out. Here's the thing. Because they weren't going out, the shrimp um, hatcheries were recovering like crazy because no one was fishing the oh, shrimp. Right. So they were yeah, just going, yeah. Really? And there were yeah, tons yeah. of shrimp around. And, and I went out with this guy, and we came back with a boat groaning with shrimp. But we were they edible? Yeah, we ate it on the boat. Okay. I filmed it for the show. For Do you the think show. BP um, was learning anything from what you guys uh, presented? Did they learn a lot of new information that they really didn't understand themselves? Nobody, yeah. I mean, they... Because they th- sound like they were relieved to have you there. Yeah. Um, they gave us access to all the top guys, all those guys who were on TV a lot, who were running the... Um, the, the, the rescue and the cleanup, um, um, they gave us total access to them. You know, they didn't try and control what they said. They, you know, they didn't have they didn't have a BP person. They're saying, "Oh no, you sure, can't say right. that." They just we just did them. Um, and 
what no one had done until we did it was to pull all the elements together because it had been very one-sided up to that right, point because yeah. you either had the media screaming like, oh, this is the biggest disaster since, um, you know, Hiroshima. Um, and then, then you had the BP people sort of trying to play it down. Hmm. But things they didn't tell you, like when Obama's EPA people came in after about three weeks, they set the thing back about six weeks and achieved nothing. Oh, sure they did, yeah, right? of course. Um, and what they, what, they, what they didn't tell you was the... Um, the way in which they were trying to fix it against incredible resistance from the government and from the EPA who were you know, interfering with all the time. And then you had the media saying it's the worst disaster ever. Mm. The, I worked out that the actual volume of oil that was released, although it seemed, I mean, it was a lot, in the context of the Gulf, which is a very big, yes. you know, almost inland sea, it was like dropping two cups of beer into the um, New Orleans... Um, What's it called? The Super Bowl or whatever it's called. The uh, yeah, Superdome. Yeah. Superdome. So, you, you know, you, th you think yeah, of that yeah, volume yeah, yeah. of air, you think of someone sitting there with two cups of beer in the stadium, knocking them over. That was the spill. Oh. So I came up with a novel idea to clean it up, was to use um, uh, hay bales. Yeah, I remember the, yeah, I remember that came out. Yeah. Put out uh, hay bales, with long uh, rows of hay bales. And it holds it it in. No, it absorbs it yeah. like a sponge. Yeah. And the hay bales would actually absorb it. They could have taken it out. I but remember. a lot of it actually evaporated. It evaporated back oh, really? up into the Yeah, episode, because the yeah. Gulf is very sunny yeah. and um, it bacteriologically it breaks it down really fast because the Gulf, they've already got 3,500 oil wells in the Gulf apart from Deepwater Horizon, a lot of which constantly have accidents and problems and leaks and they get shut yeah. down and they have little explosions and burnouts all the time, um, which is not great, but it, do, it does happen. And the Gulf naturally is just seeps oil out because it is you know it's oh, very really oil rich yeah. so all that oil for thousands millions of years has been seeking out into, into the gulf and getting um broken down by you know uh process of sunlight and it's used to it so it's actually used to kind of healing itself so th they were surprised at the rate that it did um disperse i noticed when i was watching all that play out <clears throat> then the the, the Obama started saying Brit British Petroleum yeah. every time. Until he found out the US were a 51%. Um, oh, really? Yes. Yes. And then it, and yes. then it, and then it uh, started yes. becoming our friends at BP. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take to do the whole thing of that? About a year. Oh, okay. Yeah, we spent a lot of time so out there. It's sort of like investigators, really. Like yeah. everything in. Yeah. So are you the go to guy now when they want an investigative documentary done? Who, BP? Anybody. Uh, Anybody. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so you're still involved with that sort of stuff now, documentaries and yeah. things. Yeah. So somebody can phone you up and say, "Oh, we've got another one." You're still yeah. involved with it. I mean, the, 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 I think if I'm going to be the go-to guy for anything, I'm the go-to guy on earthquakes, right. because literally, I get I get a phone call while they're happening from a production company saying, "Guess where you're going tomorrow?" I mean, it, it, because they're so competitive about right. trying to get their show on air. Right. Sure. You know, they are. They're almost kind of starting to talk to us. Something. There might be an earthquake and in so and so. Sort of training. It was it seismology or something. Is there any like natural uh, history thing in your experience? But was it just having done it? Well, you spend a lot of time researching it um, in between and when you're writing the scripts. And I mean, I've done seven of these. I think seven of these shows. Oh, I suddenly got a weight behind. Um, you. And I've met a lot of seismologists, and so they talk to you a lot, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> until you want to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> But they tell uh, finally somebody's interested in what I do. So <laughs> yeah. Let me tell I'm you, I'm actually not. Yes, no. I, it is. It is really interesting because um, about ten years ago, one of them started talking to me about dynamic triggering, uh -huh. which is like. <laughs> um, uh -huh. But it is really interesting because what dynamic triggering is, you know, those kind of cat's cradle 
executive yeah, toys that go bosh bosh yeah, like that. Nice. What dynamic triggering is that you get a volcano going bang like that around the other side of the Pacific Rim in say yeah. Alaska. If there's an earth, if, if there's a, a volcano that goes off in oh, Indonesia, it, over. it goes around and it sets it off because they all bang into each other. Right, yeah. sure. And okay. we started pitching this idea 10 years ago to scientists and they all said, that's rubbish. You know, you're talking absolute rubbish. It's not, it's not proven. Now it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's quite interesting when you, you stick around for long enough and, and start to see this, you, yeah. they start talking about these things and, and everyone poo-poos it. And you actually, you get involved with the genesis of the thing going from being ridiculed to being right, accepted. Yeah. Like, do, I mean, do you it's think the same science has really more sense than to call new theories rubbish until they've actually, you know, sorted them out? Yeah. No, they, they, scientists are extremely conservative and quite narrow. I think they're more, they would be more, it seems, uh, upset that someone else is telling them something that they should probably know themselves. Oh, yeah, that, that, that cheese is that, off uh, big yes, time. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what have you done with the, 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 uh, the earthquakes and what's, like, what's happened? How's it, um, the career started with that? Well, the first one was the really big one, which was Indonesia in 2004. Okay. Um, which I saw um, unfold with, along with everybody else on the TV. Mm -hmm. And they started saying there's going to be like, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of casualties. And I was thinking, I think you'll find that's going to be hundreds of thousands of yeah. casualties. Mm -hmm. And while that death toll was racking up during that week, I got flown out with my team. Oh, so straight in. Yeah. Straight. Yeah. Wow. I mean, like five days after it happened. And um, it was, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. And, the the thing about about these experiences is the um, appreciation of what utter devastation is like to experience close up, yeah. which uh, you know uh, Europeans haven't really experienced that since the Second World yeah. War. It's funny how soft but, like, you have to think like what's that? to them that's the end of the world happening. I mean, like that's yeah. like that's the Armageddon. A friend of mine was on was in there. He was on a train going through India. They got hit by the wave. Oh, right. Yep, Jesus. and only he and one lady survived. I remember that train. entire car. You go, oh, yeah, yep. we're, in the, we're on a planet. Yeah, this, this happens. But you just yep. don't see it. You don't... Yeah, but so, everything goes. I mean, like, you yeah. see... You, you stand there on the top of a hill, and there's a town that was there, that, you know, a few days before. Gone. Yeah. There is nothing there. It's like they've taken a massive bulldozer and, and just, just taken out the whole town. Yeah. Apart from the toilets. In what way? Everyone, for some reason, that room is the one that, that, that lasts because I don't know what it is, but, but it's, it's, I think it's like they the must, stairs. No, like they, <laughs> just, they just must build a lot of concrete around. Oh, well, okay, right, yeah, to keep well, it all in. Well, because yeah. it's probably. And so there's like thousands of the, toilets. The pipe, the pipe for the toilet, right, is connected all the way through the house it's into the mains from yeah. the street. Yeah. So it's quite secure. It's right. kind of, you know, sort so of. So that's sort of air in life. Uh, that happens. Jenga. Is that just gone now or do they try and start again? No, thing? they start again. Um, what do you do? I mean, how, um, how do you. Bandit Ache in northern Indonesia was totally wiped out and they've actually only just finished rebuilding it because yeah. the 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 um, army stole pretty much all of oh, that 15 gosh. billion yeah. yeah yeah it just went and that that's the problem with aid is right. that those countries tend to be really corrupt and the money just disappears it's the same the same thing happened just recently in um, Haiti in Nepal oh Nepal oh Haiti touch the sides yeah um, but we it's just weird they get a weird influx of money but then that yeah, just, no, they follow had, up. No one follows yeah. up and, and make sure they actually get spent where it's supposed to. They be. just have a great system for stealing it because it's 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 a pastime, yeah. you know. And they have they're very organised. It's very corrupt. Philippines are like that. Wow. Malaysia is like that. 
And what you get to see very close up is that system at work. And, and actually, you also see the really good aspect of it, because we had these three guys, um, these local businessmen who were friends of our fixer, who, had, who mm-hmm. had, no, had no interest in us whatsoever. But he asked them to lend us $15,000, because we'd, we'd used all up our... We'd got through like $30,000 in four days on various things. And um, he rounded these three guys up, who he knew locally, in um, Banda Ache. Uh No, it was in... Um, yeah, it was banned actually, and uh, they they lent us fifteen thousand dollars. No security, didn't know who we were. They just did it on his on his say so. Right. I mean, he wow. obviously realised that if he didn't get the money back, he would probably be killed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, we were good for it, and uh, thanks to them, they funded us to um, bribe the army to fly us in a, in a, in a military aeroplane, very heavily overloaden, over, overladen, over the mountains to a little island called Similu. Um, which was like the closest landmass to the centre of the earthquake because we wanted to, you know, like get to the sort of the, the centre of it with the uh, the seismologist. And the thing that blew my mind was that when we got there, the runway was now on a slope, because oh, I, and I didn't God, know this, right. but 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 islands do that. Yeah, they shift. They actually them. tilt like yeah. about ten feet from end to end, which is enough to put like a three or four degree hill yeah. into. In so um, when it came to take off, we had to take off with the wind behind us in a tropical storm going into the wind because we're going downhill otherwise we wouldn't have got off the ground and we 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 cleared the perimeter fence going out in a tropical storm in a very heavily overloaden uh, overladen plane by 18 inches wow i mean i saw the fence go underneath the plane oh my god and the thing you're a lovely guy so who shot at you (laughs) oh yes please the taliban Oh, um, I was in Pakistan um, doing another film about the Pakistan earthquake, and uh, that was 2005. And I was in Kashmir with a seismologist and a whole bunch of, as, oh, as it turned out, a bunch of um, ex-Pakistan special forces. I might sound I stupid now, but I've just got to, otherwise I forget. Kashmir. Yeah. Anything to do with the clothing? Kashmir. No, Kashmir? no. No, Kashmir is 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 a, is a um, comes off a oh, I chinchilla. Yeah, it doesn't it? come from there or something. No, it's okay. a different spelling. And, Sorry, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> always a different yeah. spelling. Okay. No, it's, Sorry, it's, show me ignorance there. No, no, no. It's nothing to do with it. So, Karen, yeah. So um, we're in this. Uh, I mean, like a whole lot of things happen very quickly because I didn't realise that the guys I was with who were who they were. Because yeah. this bloke that I'd met in London, who I'd interviewed, who ran a chain of supermarkets here, is a lovely guy, um, who was um, the sort of. How's it going to get from supermarkets to... No, no, wait, this happens really quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, we interviewed him. He was from Pakistan. He was from um, a town that got very badly affected. And he was in the town during the earthquake. So he was doing like a first-hand account of what happened, which was pretty horrendous. And I interviewed him here. And he was, he was really nice. And he said, look, who's looking after you when you go out there? And I said, nobody. He said, well, you'll get killed. Right. So I said, okay, <laughs> have you got any ideas? And he said, um, yeah, my brother-in-law works at the Pakistan embassy... Go and see him. He'll sort out your visas tomorrow, which was a Saturday, and they shut on a Saturday tomorrow. Tomorrow, and he did, and we we he came out with all the visas for the for the crew at like midday on the Saturday. But this sounds very ad. There's no process set up. No, with the company but that's you that, work with. But that's kind of the point. That I want. <laughs> that that, that's the point I want to make is yeah. is that the reason that they use me is because I'm used to working without any rules right, and okay. making it up as I go along yeah, and okay. getting shot at. Because right. you do get shot at because right. uh, you know it's lawless. So, so you got your visas. We got visas. Um, and we got to Islamabad um, and met all his guys. And they were just, they're all sleeping in this massive house that he owned, which wasn't even finished. I mean, like it was, it was a, pretty yeah. much a building site, you know, but it was a roof over our heads and it was huge. 
And there was this room full of about 15 guys, and they came with us in this um, a whole lot of kind of um, well, they didn't military garb. No, not oh, at all. Just blokes with And guns. they were just, you know, very laid back, and how are you? What did your party? Thanks very much. You know, just there was no kind of chat. Was alarm bells starting to... No, no. they weren't, because I just thought they were just some... I thought they were the guys who'd been building the house. Oh, sure. okay. Anyway, we got up into the mountains, three o'clock in the morning, um, <laughs> over my head. Oh, Christ, you weren't um, expecting it. That's a sound you never forget. Yeah. It's often a sound you never hear. Yeah. Because yeah. you... Yeah, you they don't get hear you. the sound before. Um, yeah. no, did you know what it was? Get... Did you know that you'd just been shot at, or did you think... Oh, it's... Yeah, yeah, no, I knew, I knew what it was. I've, 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 I've handled fierce. weapons quite a lot. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I, knew, I knew what it was, and... Um, so I, I dived on the ground, um, and all these guns came out out of the boot of the out of out of the the, uh, the trunks, as you call them, um, yeah. of the cars. All these automatic weapons, and this firefight started like in a second, you know, and all hell broke loose. And um, I didn't know at that stage who was shooting us, but it turned out it was a fairly early form of the Taliban okay. who were making a lot of ground in ter- because there was so much chaos and the police were completely right, yeah. and the army were nowhere. And, um, uh, at some point, um, a ricochet, um, hit me. Oh, uh, oh, so wow. I got a bit of, um, splinter. I've still got a scar up here. Um, went to my shoulder. I mean, it, it wasn't very serious, just, um, hurt. And, uh, then it stopped. And I said to these guys, I think we need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who are you? Yeah. And they said, oh, well, we're special forces. You know, it's like, um, what's his name? Hardest to uh, look after you. It's like, Okay, well, um, I didn't know that, but um, I'm so super glad that you're actually here and you have all those guns and stuff, you know. But actually, it made me feel worse because suddenly the whole game utterly changed. You know, it went from me sort of going around having... Roving reporter. Yeah, yeah, roving reporter (laughs) to... um, Oh, there's a real war going on. (laughs) To feeling like I was in the middle of... And I actually met some of the Taliban um, in Mushafrabad, I think it was, um, because they were guarding the local school. Uh-huh. And um, they were kind of like old school, I'd say. I mean, they weren't sort of young, yeah, you know, crazy to, yeah. Turks. They were just old guys who were pretty laid back. And and I said, you know, you, um, are, you are you Taliban? And he very proudly said, yes, I am. Yeah. And I said, do you have a problem with me? And he said, uh, not if you have, not unless you have a problem with me. No, yeah. they're actually they're actually very nice. Did you ever feel you're in danger of being kidnapped? Yes. Yeah. C- I mean, that's got to be yeah. That's got to be normal from, from, thing. The, from the time that all the guns came out. Yeah. I just saw a. Um, I, uh, um, presentation by a war photographer named Sean Langan, who uh, had actually been kidnapped by the Taliban and had to be ransomed out uh, through BBC. And uh, he had been gone to Pakistan several times, uh, reported on the Taliban and everything going on there for several years. And had, uh, but he said it can happen in the blink of an eye. You think you're safe because you've been going back and forth for a while and you've made enough friends and contacts. And then before you know it, you're in the back of a, of a car going, thinking you're going to interview someone and you're being taken off the other way. Yeah. But uh, they made this film, uh, sort of a dark comedy called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, mm. WTF. I've seen it. <laughs> Have you seen it? Mm. So his character is played by Martin Freeman. Um, I saw it in conjunction with his presentation, which uh, I thought kind of did a bit of a disservice to him because they were making all a lark out of it. I get, you know, understand. But apparently he's made a docudrama about his experience. He showed a clip from that, which actually looks quite good, in which he, he was, in fact, kidnapped and he was being held in this house 
and uh, they wanted information from him. They wanted the names of his children, and he refused to give them the names of his sons. And he said, no, I'm not giving you that. I'm not going to put their lives in danger. No, you just can't have that. And it got to the point where these Taliban guys who were, old, you know, folksy uh, uh, rural community were getting so angry about it that they put a gun to his head. They said, we're going to shoot you if you don't tell us. And he still said no. And then they said, we're going to shoot your fixer, your friend, because he had a friend with them too, if you don't tell us your kids. So on that, he finally did. As it turns out, uh, his one son, I think his name Brian, but his other son is named Gabriel. Well, Gabriel is a prophet in the Old yeah. Testament. And for these very old world uh, religious oh, fanatics, Jesus, even that, just when they heard it. that, they were overwhelmed because <laughs> Gabriel supposedly delivered the Quran to Muhammad. Oh, right. And so when they heard that, they their attitude completely changed. And he went from being hostage to guests. So that's your hot tip. Yeah, if you're <laughs> for kidnappers, what's tell your, them the name's Gabriel. Ones are called Muhammad. Muhammad Gabriel. Gabriel Moses. <laughs> or when they're away, just let them hear you praying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> To oh, start prattling on about so this, checking on. Is there any sort of setup for that? Because, like you said, it's a constant f- worry that if you go over to these places, you might be kidnapped. So, is there something that you're told beforehand? And are you well, sorry, but also, are you insured? Do they insure you in any way for this? Do they go that's off, actually a bit let's of a, go off Simon Hill. No, that's a bit of a sore point. Is is that the insurance that they insure you? I think the grand total of about twenty five grand. And it's more to protect them against you suing them, yeah, than wow. anything else. And it's it's kind of. Um, it doesn't make you feel particularly loved, no. Yeah. I remember um, years ago when uh, uh, the entrepreneur James Kahn, um, I was reading his, or listening to his autobiography, and uh, his dad got kidnapped after he floated the company um, in Pakistan. I don't know where he's from. And the police basically said to him, like they said, like, give us the money or this is going to happen to your father. He did get kidnapped. <clears throat> and they basically said, just pay it. He said, because they, they set up any, they also said, pay it because they haven't killed anybody for a long time uh-huh. so they might be quite willing to just kill him just right. to show that yeah. so they said just pay the bloody money and they didn't go back I thought oh Christ well Sean said that they, uh, when he was kidnapped that there is a uh, negotiator who's actually like a top negotiator in the US out of Texas who had worked in uh, hostage negotiation with the police and all that for years and then with the FBI and now he's actually an international hostage negotiator right. and so he negotiated with his uh, uh, takers uh, and had to because they said they uh, first they'll ask for an outrageous amount of money like 10 million 10 billion you know US dollars plus uh, the release of several of their you know their guys from a prison and so forth and he has to bargain them down and one of the things that Sean said, which is rather disheartening, but he had to explain to um, to his kidnappers that Sean wasn't really that important in right. the hierarchy of things. He just answered the phone. <laughs> well, he's a, he's a freelance uh, war photographer and all of that, but he's not... He wasn't really necessarily a big prize. For, he has yeah. to convince them that this guy isn't really a big prize, and you're not going to get what you're asking for. And it's actually gonna look more stupid if you kill him yeah. than if we just you know work out some sort of you know medial amount and so he said apparently he got they bargained down to a pretty like basic just sale to, to yeah to let him go. I listened to a podcast once and there's a guy who'd spoken to an actual negotiator and um, 
they were basically saying, oh, you have to bore them. You have to get them bored. Yeah. Get them hungry, get them bored. Yes. Just, it's coming, it's coming. Yes. It's only yes. around the corner. Yes. Oh, it's just problem, wear, five wear minutes, down. Minutes. Yes, exactly. Said, so they just want to get out. Yes. And they said, hunger will yes. do strange things to you. They, like, just, no, they just wore them down. Yeah. This is negotiating. No, he's really not worth this much money. We're not going to remember. Yeah. Now, a friend of mine in Brazil was kidnapped. Um, he was coming out of a club. He's Brazilian himself. He's coming out of a club, and he had one of these beat-up old Volkswagen Bugs because everybody in Brazil had these old—they called Fuscas because they, yeah. they had the industry there. And so he had an old beat-up Volkswagen Bug. Was he worth money? Well, no, the car? No, no was, him. Well, let me tell you. He was just dressed in his regular ratty jeans and a T-shirt, and he'd come out of a club, and he got in the backseat. He got into his car, and up from the backseat, these two guys appeared with a gun to put a gun to his head. And they drove around with him. They made him drive for about three hours— while they debated what they were going to do with this, with that, but they got a kid out home for money or they get cash out of the bank. And he was telling them, guys, look at me. Look at the way I'm dressed. Look yeah. at my car. I'm as poor as you. You're not going to get anything out of yeah. me. You know, take the car. The only thing he had nice was a watch. He had a nice watch. So they took his watch and they drove, they drove him out to the field. Like they were going to blow his head off and just leave him there. But said so they took his watch, kicked him out of the car, and they took his beat up old car. What they didn't know is that his family is one of the largest orange juice providers in all of Brazil. All and right. they, most of the orange juice that we drink in Europe comes from his family's plantation. <laughs> they had no idea. So that was just a random kidnap. Yes, oh, but they right. had no idea yeah. the treasure that they actually had because yeah. he's a prince. <laughs> but he's such a humble guy. He would, he, you would never know that he's worth that I much. think kidnapping has become... A much cheaper commodity yeah. than it yeah. was, and the chances of you getting a bullet in the back of the head have increased a lot. Um, yeah, because it's become oh, there's a value here now, of course. Yeah. Look, with the Somalian thing, with the Somalian pirate, that originally started because the Russians were dumping all their crap, and it killed their the, the, the money that was coming in through the fish. So they were going out to sort of defend and attack the fact that they were dropping all this shit off there. But then by accident, they realised, you know, you give us back the money. Or we'll kill these people for what yeah. you've done. But then it becomes, oh, hang on, there's, there's money well, here. Yeah, and then you just end up kidnapping yeah. for the... So it becomes a currency to kidnap somebody, which is well, a weird paradigm to set up. You don't, you, you, you don't want to get kidnapped, basically, because yeah. you, you just never know what the outcome is yeah, going to right, be. Yeah. And, and we, we do get... Um, you know, we do risk assessments, which sounds pathetic, but we do. And it's quite interesting doing a risk assessment on kidnap, but you know, there is a box for it. And we get training on... Um, uh, survival and avoidance and you know all, all, what, all kinds what, of things how rigorous is that I mean, um it depends on how how deep you're going i mean the sort of um uh, uh frontline news reporters you know who are reporting from aleppo and things like that get very very extensive um you know kidnap mitigation and yes. survival and uh terrorist um experience and they do the whole thing with the SAS they kind of put they they, they show them what it's like to be yeah, kidnapped yeah, yeah. I mean I've never done that but 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 those guys they they put a hood over you shout at you keep you awake for 12 hours but what's the preparation like what, I mean well, that's it I mean yeah, that, that's the preparation yeah. so just to give you a taste of, but there's of no what sense it might be like say this don't say that it's just yeah yeah and that as well I mean yeah. you know like um other code words and things like that no but um they they give you as much as they possibly can to help you um, and, and actually give you confidence that um, you can do something about it. Because that's the thing about disaster is that with um, like the difference between the um, Indonesians and the, and the uh, Japanese during, after the Japanese um, yeah. earthquake um, yeah. 2010, yeah. the Japanese were just, they immediately started to rebuild. 
I mean, they're very stoic about it. And yeah. everyone uses that word about, about the Japanese, but they really are. Yeah. And they, yeah. they're used to having terrible stuff happen to them. I mean, you know, um, with, their, with their history. I mean, they're kind of, it's part of their culture to have bad stuff happen. Around it, yeah. So um, they, when, when I got there, which was literally the day after that one, they were, you know, the, 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 um, by the Monday, the, uh, the bulldozers were out. They were starting to clear sure. up. You know, they've just started to rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that starting from scratch that we would hear. They, like say, it's built into the system. These things happen every so often. With these I, I think. I think the thing about the about the about this country though is that I think we're like that as well. And I, I yeah. think that if we had something really bad happen, I think we'd just kind of. Was that the it. British way, right? No, I think it, I think it's a sort of like an, a, island, it's an island it's mentality, huge, yeah. right? But you also have a strong central government that can organize these things and, yeah, and it has it in place. Because the, the same thing happened with nine eleven. I that's, no, that's, people, a very good, that's a very good point yeah. because they, Indo- Indonesia didn't. They said yeah. in, um, in uh, after nine eleven, he said New York was one of the greatest places to be. Everybody got on, yeah. like because it does has that thing of everybody yeah. sort of pulls together. Mm. But you're right, yeah, you need the government you to set this. Do you want to hear a funny story? Actually, out of nine eleven, when oh, it Jesus. happened, no, when it happened, um, people around the country, I know in Chicago, were uh, queuing up to donate blood and things like that because oh, we right, expected yeah, yeah, like yeah. there might be injured people or survivors and you know that sort of thing. And so people were all queuing up to donate blood. And as you were in the queue for to donate your blood, you had to fill out a questionnaire. On the questionnaire, it said things like, "Do you have any tattoos? Do you have any piercings?" Um, have you ever had sex for money? <laughs> I thought, well, does beer cost yeah, yeah. money? <laughs> or ride home? Price? And then it said, uh, have you visited um, Have you visited the UK? Have you visited Europe in the last five years? If so, have you visited the UK? If yes, did you eat meat? Because it's around the time of the mad cow scare. Oh, okay, yeah, right, that was yeah. all out there. Well, one by one, you saw people leaving the queue, and you could kind of figure out. They're like, ah, I'm the most tattoo. boring person. That's got a tattoo. It's got a pair. Ah, yes, slut. And so by the end of the end of the, the, the day, there were only like little old ladies left, you know, who maybe had a cup of sherry. And the fifties. And they were just like, oh dear, you need you need to go. You need all the blood you have. So we're like, okay, I tried. I tried. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, 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 so, bit. <laughs> so which, which 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 box did you fall over? All of them. I didn't get past name. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I about four months ago, I filled out for the first time one of the donor cards, and it's such a weird thing. I was filling out the donor card, and I thought, you tick everything, and yeah, just take the bloody lot while you're messing around. And uh, there was something about giving away the eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to give away my eyes like yeah. that. My, that. My mother did that. Yeah. What? Gave, gave away, away the, her eyes. Yeah. But the, the everything. No, her eyes. Just the eyes. Yeah, they well, did the cornea. still working use, properly. Yeah, yeah I was going to say corneas. Yeah. She, had, she had cancer, so there wasn't much ah, so of any not. use. But her eye, eyeballs were okay, so she was born with that kind of, you know, with her eyes stitched up. Well, here's the thing for you. I always throw weird questions to people. Obviously, if you look at it from one end, you, you shouldn't have to give your body away. But shouldn't it sort of be built into the city? But it's so horrific to think that we just die and bury ourselves yeah. and all that thing just goes, goes to waste. Right. Rather than knowing we need those things desperately. Shouldn't it be that we, it's sort of, you sign up to it just implicitly at 18, that, but you can opt out if you want to because most of it's well, just laziness. It, it, like, We're not going to sign up for it. It's too much work. But in some work. countries, I think like in France, uh, you, have to, you have to sign a card 
to not to donate your arms. Yeah, it's you automatic. shouldn't have to. No, it's automatic. it's automatic. It's automatic. Unless you, you sign not out. to. Yeah, it's because automatic I think unless you opt out. Because most people would. It's just laziness. Yes. That's as complicated as it gets. I'm not doing laziness and filling out paper. It's people got too much going on. Do you think they should, Simon? Do you think you should just be able to opt out? But generally, when you die, your body goes to science or whatever. I have a total conflict about it because logically, I think that donor... Um, um, being a donor should be compulsory yeah. because your body is of no use it's to nothing. you. But at the, at the same time, on, on a, um, a spiritual level, it, it really bothers me and I can't really tell you why. Well, this is what I just said about me. I was just doing it. I didn't tell anyone. I filled out the donor thing, but something really got to the eyes. Oh, <laughs> you know, got, I'll give a bit of rest you know, the in eyes. China, and they've gotten into trouble with this, they were automatically harvesting the organs from condemned prisoners. They, they, instead of uh, in their execution yeah. manner, they would simply put them put the condemned in an ambulance, and on the way to the hospital, give them a lethal injection, and then harvest his organs. But it turns out um, they were then selling them on the open market, and the World Health Organization got involved when they found out they were just taking these harvesting organs from condemned criminals from the Chinese perspective yes these people are contributing something back to society however there apparently there was they didn't mention that they were getting their organs this way and there is no indication that they were doing any sort of uh, um, uh, vetting or you know uh, uh, you know health check on these people you know uh, and so they were just simply harvesting organs from condemned criminals because in without, India they had a problem typical with Chinese that. Yeah. Falls, falls apart in five but minutes yeah, but in their idea it makes sense okay I get it yes you, you're going to be executed and you're actually going to contribute something to say but there apparently was no health screening or anything like that so you don't yeah. know what kind of organs you're getting from this person you know well there were, a few, there were a few cities there are a lot of cities around the world where they'll slip you a, a rohypnol yeah. And you wake up well, the next day minus, oh, yeah, minus a kidney. Minus a kidney. There was a there guy in Russia, so I was reading about this, and he woke, it was a thing of like the films, he met yes. some girls, blah, blah, blah. Next thing, he woke up in a bath of ice yes. with a cut on him and a sign saying, call the, yeah, the huh? you've had Well, a friend of mine's a mortician back in Chicago, and he says part of the problem they face is that people want to donate their bodies to science. Great. The problem is if you die of old age, Science doesn't want your body. There's nothing they can learn from your old organs. But there and must they can't, be. The no, brain. They've learned a lot, and they can't use your old organs. Science they don't doesn't need, want your body. Nobody yeah, wants nobody your body. Wants your 75 <laughs> Have you tried getting liver. a date? Nobody wants your... <laughs> yeah, doesn't want my body. Forget yes. the mind. Nobody wants your 75-year-old liver. I don't know if it's in America. It's, it's I watched a documentary on this, and it was like the, the, the science students that had these dead bodies, the, the, the corpses, the yeah. whole corpses they were experimenting on, would actually write letters to the body sort of thing. And obviously, it's more for them. But that's a real thing, to be, and they were sort of putting it in with the body. Write a letter with the, to the body. To say thank you, we appreciate your uh, what you've done. And again, it's more for them. Apparently. Because um, some of the data, they were telling me how when they had the first time they have to operate on people, like when the first time you do something, they bring yeah. you into a sea of dead body for the first time when you pass all your courses. Yeah. And he said, two people just drop instantly. You go, right, that's not going to happen. Just they'd yeah. see the dead body and go, and all that training, once they saw the dead body, out. It's not funny, that's built into your sort of system. Um, well, the, the, the more I learn about soul trauma, um, the, the reason it worries me is um, the more I learn about how people's souls become disintegrated and they, they, they leave, they get disintegrated by trauma. Yeah. And if, if you subscribe to reincarnation, the sort of the theory of reincarnation, I mean, if you don't, it doesn't make any sense. But if you do, each time you live, you go through trauma. You know, yeah. you might get 
dismembered. I mean, right. You know, back in the Middle Ages, everyone lived a much more violent life than they do now. Yeah. And get, get, having a violent end was very common. Or, or you, you know, you die of disease or whatever. So, all that, all that violence, yeah, I mean, that you, karmic, that karmic violence stays with you, and uh, people when, leave bits. And you know, you know this sort of thing when people say, "Oh, I feel like there's something missing in my, in, in my yeah, life. I, or I feel there's something missing in me. It's like I feel blocks. You know, there is something missing. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. right. But isn't that the? And uh, uh, I could be totally wrong. The whole uh, premise behind uh, like Buddhism and. Uh, achieving nirvana, you get reincarnated so much until you achieve some sense of perfection, and therefore, when you have achieved nirvana, you don't get reincarnated anymore. You do dissipate into the universe. You're finished. Yeah. So it's sort of the goal, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Somebody once said it was actually like it was a, a futuristic, whatever you want to call it, term of punishment of your rehabilitation that you. It's up to you how yeah. far you like, get. Well, to fix mistakes that remain yeah. before you. But it's up to you whether you because I remember. Um, I'm not going too much into it, but I always thought, okay, there's eight lives. Don't want to get into why. There's eight. There's different because I religiously looked at people since I was a child. Right, just it set the ball rolling at like eight, nine years old, and then I started to see patterns and talking to people and throwing questions. And I sort of got to the fact there's about eight to ten different types of people, and that you can always communicate with one above you and one below you. It's very difficult to communicate with somebody that's below the bottom because they've got to help themselves, but some people don't, so they just replay. And then I heard a story, and, you know, I've done security nightclubs for like 17 years of, you yeah. know, becoming an expert in people. And I heard a guy who was in the prison service for 20 years, and he said, I think there's about eight different types of people. And he said, some people are so at the bottom there's no point trying to explain things they can't learn the way you teach them the voice is it, it, it dissipates so you have to teach them from ground one even though they look like an adult and i think yeah. their spirituality is so at, it's at the bottom so you have to start so they're just with, unenlightened or they're just unable to receive it was that first level thing it's just you're a human being and now do i it's like a child do i grab and take do i do this can i think of the future can i not it's a, it's it's my a, it's a, just i think it's the best way to describe it is it's like a vibrational level uh-huh. so if you vibrate at a very high frequency um you can hear stuff at a very high frequency if you're vibrating at a very low frequency you can't and you've got to go through that karmic reincarnation process to raise your vibrational level and uh, people do raise their vibrational level in that same lifetime but often don't and they are stuck in that in that rut yeah uh-huh. but it's that thing of it's your own choice to move on and they also they think and from again looking at people that i've known there's only about four that i thought that the, the hardest part the worst you're going to have it isn't the start because then you're quite ignorant so there's no real pain coming in right. you see you're like an ape right but the last part is almost like the hardest part and then you've sort of dealt with everything that could be thrown at you but you still remain the same and then you become a teacher and I've noticed that in people that have had fucking everything thrown at them. Everything from day one, the lot, the everything from every angle. And they get to the point where their self-esteem is very low, but they've still kept going and they're teaching people. Which think, yeah. And I thought, oh, they're the people that, that they're on the last, man. They did it. They completed everything they had to. Now, the reason we've jumped from that production and the, everything to the spirituality is because you had your own sort of awakening, Simon. Um, unfortunately, I had to come through sort of, you know, losing a loved one. Uh, but can you explain sort of the, the the couple of years leading up to that, and then the change, the shift? Yes. Um, as we've been talking, um, I've spent you know a long time 
working in the media and being exposed to um, all sorts of things around the world and seeing lots of earthquakes and lots of dead people. I've tripped over dead people. I've held a baby in my arms who was who died in my arms because she got um, so she got, um, hit on the head um, in Haiti and she actually died while I was holding her. And that, that kind of stuff stays with you for your whole life. And you, I think you get a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder thing out of it because they stay with you and you have to process it and it's often hard to do that. Um, and I've, I've always been naturally quite a sort of spiritual person. My mum was um, quite a famous healer um, and taught me um, uh, a lot of the sort of the principles without me ever really sort of being that aware of it. Um, and the going to earthquake thing started in 2004, as I said, and my mum died in 2006. And it was, and I think a lot of people will uh, recognise this moment in their own lives where there is a moment in your life where you kind of get to a crossroads and something happens and you can feel your direction and your trajectory changing. And that that was when the day she died and she was in a little um degradable basket her biodegradable basket in, in her grave because she being old-fashioned she opted to actually get buried and I, I think that does it these days <laughs> and I was looking at her and it, it's you know her being my mum it was a, a moment of um enormous pain um because we'd always been very close and she would be my sort of confidant and my advisor and like well, you know everyone who's got who's got a mum who talks to them is and I realized that that had just stopped and I stood there and looked down into a grave for about 20 minutes, crying my eyes out, and um, something changed in my heart and something changed in my, um, in, in just in my basic direction where I realised that it was time that I grew up. And a um, psychologist called William Romain said to me many years ago that the, only, the moment that men finally become men is when their mothers die. It's an interesting mm-hmm. point, kind of probably true. And... I realized that it was time that I stood in my own light and started to make changes in my life and started to apply what she taught me. And there was this kind of voice in the back of my head. Um, it was a bit Monty Python, you know, it was like, sort of, it was almost like there was this bloke looking a bit like you, the big beard in the, in the sky, uh-huh. looking down, sort of going, it's time. Yeah. And it was a bit like, I mean, it, it, was, it was a very emotionally charged moment, very upsetting and, um, I freak out when people die anyway because I really feel it. When people die, the the the, the departing life, I've, I've always really felt. There's a tear. Just, there's yeah. A tear. yeah, you can. It is, there's a, such an absence of life in the body. It's shocking, um, and it's not like when they're asleep, they're dead, and there's right. there's something not there. And I've that's always right. been conscious of that. And I think everyone, if you think about yeah, it, yeah. you kind of you're sensitive to that. And that's what it was like massively with her. I mean, I knew that she just kind of transported and would sort of had gone on to. Um, a spiritual plane i really i really knew that and the way that she died was was very gentle and um we went to see her um the day that she died and she and she actually tutted when we came in and i said what's the matter she said i was just getting ready to die and i said you can't decide you're gonna die she said oh no i can Yeah. yeah and that freaked me out and um and i said well do you want us to stay and she said no no, not really. Um, the cat's nose that I'm going. No, you can you can you can clear off now. And I'll, stick and I'll stick on ITV yeah. before you go. Yeah, <laughs> and and then two hours later she died. Wow. Um, and so my life started to change um, at that point far more than I actually realised. But I, I was conscious of there being a, a a change in direction. And from that moment on, um, it was as if 
And again, I think a lot of people who have been through this will recognise elements of this. It was as, as if a voice started talking to me and showing me things. And I started finding myself doing things that um, um, accelerated that. And I, and I kind of compounded everything, all my experience um, that I'd had around the world shooting and the places that I'd been to. And I also realised I'd been to a lot of the world's heart chakras without realising it. And, it, and I, I suddenly thought, hang on, I've been led. I really felt that. I, f I felt that I'd been um, taken to places and shown things. And my mum, you know, saying what she did and um, teaching me the things that I did, I, I sort of thought, I'm actually halfway through an educational process that I wasn't even aware of. I am now. Right. So I just became more active about it and started to learn more about the spiritual realm. I wrote my first book um, in 2008, um, prompted by her dying. Um, because I sort of wanted to put a, in like a stake in the ground, sort of like, this is what I've learned so far, and this is what's happened to me. Mm. Because you tend to forget it. You tend to forget all these weird things that happen to you. Like when, mm -hmm. I, was in my, when I, I was in my room one night, when I came back from Glastonbury, and I'd taken a photograph up the tour, of, and I saw it, like a 40-foot tongue of flame that came out of my right hand. And it, I mean, it makes you sound like a nutcase, but I took a picture of it. I took a picture of it, which I've got. So no one can say, no, you're making that up, mate. So, so I took a picture of it. And um, that's happened quite a few times. And what are the chances? I mean, you try taking a picture of a firework going horizontally at one thirtieth of a second. You'll be there for fucking yeah, yeah, months. Trying to, it'll never work. It'll just be gone. But I took it, and it's a beautiful, perfect picture of this tongue of flame. How, how mad is that, <laughs> right? And... Um, and that, and that has happened quite a lot. There have been quite a few instances of the strangest things happening to me, and I've seen the strangest things. And, and I was in my room trying to go to sleep after this experience on the 9th of the 9th of, of 2009. So it was like, and it was at nine minutes past nine in the evening. I, I had no idea, I didn't even realise this for about three months, and I looked at the uh, timestamp on the picture. I mean, it's funny how these things happen. It's like, why would it be nine minutes past nine on the ninth of the ninth of the ninth? I mean, I don't even know what that what that well, means, apart from if you invert the, invert the numbers. And there's probably some sort of numerological yeah. significance of that. Well, it's a vision of three. Three is a mystical number. So. Yeah. The, um, three is a magic number. Uh, yeah. I recently spoke to uh, Dr. David Ball, the, the um, TV presenter, doctor. Uh, and he was... Because obviously he's from a doctor's background you know a specialist in that sort of thing and he's uh, I said to him about uh, anything weird happened to you and there was like nothing and then he said this one thing happened and I don't want to give it all away people have to go back and listen but basically when he brought the name Derek Acora into it I started thinking oh Christ like I, I, but I trust him like I trust his instincts as a doctor and things like that and it basically led to something happened he walked into a random bar randomly saw Derek Acora and Derek Acora, it said to him straight away something that had happened to him that day. And I questioned him about, did you text anyone? Did you mention it? And you forgot. He said, I went home, got a drink, went out to the bar. He was there. He said something to me, which, again, you're going to have to go back and listen. And he said, Derek Acora jumped on him and started strangling him in a bar. Ah. Did nobody, no media there. He said, started strangling me on the floor, strangling the life out of me, trying to kill him. And then he said he snapped out of it. He got up and he said... Oh, sorry, your something he'd said about his grandmother, like he, that uh -huh. his grandmother had come through him, but he said, I didn't close it down and something else got out. And he said, he was trying to kill me. We were two grown men on the floor. And from some this weird, he said, but he wasn't there the day. He didn't know anything. I just walked out, random bar walk. He happened to be there. And it was Derek. And I said, 
I said, no, straight like you said, there's no way these things are going to happen. But um, I've like we've had this conversation briefly before, Simon, about the. Uh, we're still sort of children with the spiritual thing. We haven't even got the right words to express it. And in a strange way, I use things like um, like uh, slavery, racism, homophobia. But when you first the people start talking about it, it sounds ridiculous because there's no words to sort of break it down, to explain it bit by bit, to become used to it. And spirituality is at that sort of stage. It's still... You've got a few words you can use to express things, but it doesn't really make sense to people. No, if you can't feel it, then it, it seems But maybe odd. because it has to be a personal experience that you can only define. Well, like that's, any, that's anything. Like you can yeah. a lot of things like that. But no, but there's but the other types you mentioned it can be generalized to an, to an extent, and they affect society as on a whole. Whereas spiritual experiences only affect the individual. I mean, yeah, personal person basis. Then, so they can only describe. And there are some common things that we all say. Yeah, yeah, that happened to me. And, we get a feel yeah, and the for problem it, is, there's a lot of idiots out there yeah. that are easy to poke fun at. It's like when you get the, um, oh, who's the guys, the, uh, what do they call it, we don't believe in God? Atheists, Atheists you know, the yeah. usual guys that get trolled out. And they always poke towards the most stupid versions of like religion. And you go, well, that's an easy thing to, you know, they talk about people that kill each other and all that. But it's only because they come from a limited purview about it. Yeah. They had, their brain does not work like that. You can be very intelligent and very stupid at the same time. And thinking that you can, you've got a good thing for memory and you've written books and things like that, it doesn't make you an intelligent person. Because when I look at people like that, I think, oh, their brain is not designed to be talking about that industry there, like the spirituality. They're not supposed to be talking about They're scientists that should be doing things where they, you, in front of your nose, you prove what's in front of your nose. So when you get these people to explain about other things, they poke fun at stupidity versions of it that we all would to bring it down. But that's they shouldn't be talking about those subjects because if you think it's laughable and there's no such thing as spirituality, there's no things after death, then that's you and on you're on that level. You don't know about the other end, but you, so they shouldn't be talking about that. But the people that you go, okay, well, bring the spiritual lesson, let's talk to them. And then you do get the morons and then you have yeah. the, the people, the American, no offense, but the, the, the call this number, God wants us to have oh, yeah. a bigger channel sort of thing. So they're easy to poke fun at. So but you're in not a way, in you, that kind of, you kind of almost need them too. So you have some, a bar by which to judge you know the quality yeah but they from. muddy the water that's oh, the problem yeah, they no muddy the water whereas I like the, the maybe two people that I felt like a child in front of like spiritually only two out of everyone I've ever met and I'd say to one of them like ask some stupid questions but I said like why don't you go and talk say stuff didn't give a shit and, and it was almost like it, it comes with the maturity that I can only explain um, as being like an adult and you're in a playground of kids, you're not trying to prove how smart you are because you see the game they're playing. Yeah, but if you're at that level, it's almost pointless trying to teach the kids these silly and you're being silly and don't do that because yeah. there's no point to it. But I think that they're locked into a system where there is no point. So why do it? Well, well if, if you go back to your eight levels of, um, of operating, like the, the, we're talking about um, vibrational frequencies um, earlier, what I've seen in terms of my own sort of you know personal empirical experience over the last three generations is that there's been this very lumpy um evolution in the human race i keep on meeting small children and and new babies now friend, friends of mine and they shine with this kind of knowing and um intuition and 
something that is different from other children. Yeah, and and you, it's a bit freaky because you sort of think you're living in the Midwich Cuckoo's Land of, of John, John Wyndham, you know, sort of um, aliens coming in and uh, um, uh, changing our genetic history. And it, and it has happened. I mean, it, it, you know, 150,000 years ago, and no one can explain why it happened. The, um, the DNA root and branch development of the human race suddenly went in a completely straight line. It's why we're the dominant race, yeah. is, is that for some reason our, our DNA just went in one direction, which was to get bigger brains, walk upright, be bigger, be stronger, be cleverer. And, it, and no other species that they've been able to find has done that, and they can't explain why it happened. I mean, it, it could be like a freak of evolution where nature decides that it needs a, a dominant race or it just happens, and that's how you become a dominant race. I mean, maybe you're just looking at why a species becomes a dominant Yeah, there are thing. certain We're the reasons. only species that's ever done that that they've been able to find. Yeah, there were, there were things to do with like the nutritional thing of finding fire. Then fire meant you could cook the food, and then you could absorb the proteins, which meant allowed the brain to grow. But there are un like weird spikes that they, they don't matter. But there is a theory that when um, uh, humanoids... Uh, first ate meat, red meat, and helped their brain to grow. When they started eating things like uh, psilocybin mushrooms, yeah. it enabled their brains to well, dream. Well, that's why they think a lot of the, the Asian countries that worship the cow, it was lost in translation that it was actually the cow pats that would give off the psilocybin, the DMT yes. and things. And I think even going back to the, the Judeo-Christian stuff of the burning bush, that burning bush happens to have these red berries that actually would contain well, the, the psilocybin. The Oracle which was the of Delphi so they, used to sit among a, ga a natural gas leak. It was a gas leak. And yeah. she, was, she was tripping <laughs> on this natural gas leak and would yeah. have these visions and things like that. But there is a, a, a physical element to it yeah, that well, when think, animals eat red meat, they eat red meat, their brains grow. Yeah. And so, um, but again, you, then you mix that with the fact that maybe they were eating these hallucinogenic mushrooms. Oh, yeah. And if you're an ape eating hallucinogenic mushrooms, Mushrooms, which yes. build a community. So there's all these various, but but there are certain things that don't make sense. They go in a certain arc that are but, are very strange. But the, the, the thing about atheism and cynicism and the and the age of science, I think, is a very interesting um, process to observe. You know, like ten thousand years ago, we were practicing what people would think now. Actually, ironically, in terms of um, in like new ages, as incredibly. Um, exciting interesting and uh, insightful and uh, because you'd have alchemists and, and um, um, shaman and wizards and uh, druids were all part of sure. life and uh, you know two th even 2,000 years ago um, like the Romans asked the druids where they should pitch camp yeah. in in what became Londinium and they got them to pitch on the sites of the what became the Olympic Stadium which is where two ley lines cross which is like an incredibly holy oh, site yeah. and it's no coincidence that they that they I don't think they'd realize this but there's no coincidence that they were drawn to build the stadium there because there's a there's a reason for it it's the same with Glastonbury and the same with all these kind of mm -hmm. points around the world that it's not a coincidence that they are where they are. So all that information, all that knowledge has largely been forgotten because, you know, you see all these stone circles yeah, yeah. and the Hebrides sure, sure. And, and it's like, well, no one really knows why they're there, but there was a reason why they were built. Sure, yeah. And all that knowledge in the Middle Ages, with, you know, with the Renaissance and, 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 the, and the birth of science and, and medicine, you saw um, the left and right brain doing a massive yeah. split where... Um, well, spirituality of a certain kind became outlawed. You know, um, uh, wizards and witches were rounded up during the uh, Spanish Inquisition and burnt at the stake. And, and actually, the, the Inquisition was in place until 1850. Did you know that? Oh, really? yeah. yeah, you could still <laughs> technically burn a witch at the stake in 1850. 
Uh, I mean, they'd sort of forgotten about it by then, but it, it was still going. So there's this huge schism in, in the human race between um, science and, and the spiritual. And I think you're, you're actually now beginning to see it beginning to re... I was just going to say, one of the fears, especially like in the Catholic Church, when uh, uh, science is beginning to try to uh, delve into the origin of the universe and the origin of mankind. And then at one point, the Vatican released a statement saying they don't have a problem with finding out... Um, how it existed, but leave the why to us. Yeah. But and there was this fear that if we uncover all the science, that it's actually going to uh, take people away from religion and all that. Yeah, when yeah. in fact the opposites yeah. happen, people have become more in tune to the. They see their connection to the universe, well, thing, and they've developed. What well, I was just going to say, a higher level. Some have become uh, developed that higher level of, of enlightenment, as yeah. it were, and understanding their space within within the universe as not so much being, uh, well, it's no longer geocentric around the earth, but seeing themselves as part of it, reaching a sort of a cosmic spirituality. Yeah, the same tension between good and evil, between whatever you want to call it, you know, sort of the divine and and, and Satan, or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it, Satan, you know, um, Saturn, whatever your your word for it is, is those sort of those those two energies that that we all understand. We we know what doing good is. We know yeah. what doing evil is. We all understand that as a concept. But I think they are actual things. I think they are a an energy that has always been in sort of um, ten, in in a kind of in conflict. And I think at the moment you're seeing bigger and bigger divisions because the good people are becoming like gooder, yes. and, and the evil is becoming more palpable. Yeah. And you're seeing evil manifest now in some really really kind of roundabout ways i think it always has but as an as an energy the sort of the darkness of of war cynicism um a lack of 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 belief and the sort of um depression and and sense of lack of self and being lost and pointless and not seeing any any point to life and nihilism that's that's a kind of a a manifestation of 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 evil and and having having a belief and um, having a sort of belief system and being aware of the the way that the universe works without, you know, I, mean, I, I don't want to sound like a sort of, you know, nutty hippie, but I, I, I'm just trying to express something. Right. Like you were, you were saying, sort of hard to find the yeah, words to express it. Words, yeah. um, and it's, it's very difficult to avoid all those kind of um, um, yeah, areas that terms, people sort yeah. of say, oh, well, you know, you're a new age idiot. But it's, this has been my, my truth. It's been my experience over the last 10 years. And, and actually it's made me as a person much happier and much more powerful, you know, because, because I have a direction and I've learnt a lot of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a massive reader, massive researcher because of what I do. I mean, it's, you know, you can't make a programme without... You yeah. have to become an expert. Yeah. Otherwise, everyone else says, you're an idiot because yeah. you missed that point. So that's your default position. So I'm always learning stuff and finding stuff out and finding out why and sort of looking at, you know, the effect that the Maya had and why there's a line of... Um, of sacred buildings that are sort of direction you can fire an arrow right round the world and they all line up you know that the pyramids mm-hmm. in um, in Thailand and submerged temples and the pyramids of Giza they're all on the same um, see that's something that's interrupted that's something I've always uh, wanted to research myself is how uh, cultures that normally would have that have had no contact with each other say uh, Mesoamerican uh, uh, pre-Columbian culture right. and uh, the Egyptians for example and yet we both they both built pyramids. One built ziggurats, to be honest. The other built pyramids. What is it within the human psyche that makes us want to what build these them? structures to begin with? And you can say, well, they're imitating mountains. Or just, but why to yeah. begin with? There has to be some drive that connects everyone to want to make these things yeah. for, for some reason and in similar shapes. Something about going up. 
similar shapes <laughs> and with you know perfect geometry and all of that and yeah maybe maybe something about going rays of light and all this this yeah. thing but it seems to be one unique factor that combines all of us and you have well, but think, it's, like, like the Mesoamerican calendar you're just talking about Mesoamerican cultures like the, yeah. the, like the Maya but the Mesoamerican calendar was exactly the same calendar that the Inuits the Aboriginals um, the uh, Bushmen of the Kalahari the um, um, well, what's what's some um, Nelson Mandela's tribe called in uh, in northern South Africa? Anyway, them um, and the and the Maya uh, all had the same uh, calendar system, and they, and they and they in theory had never had any contact. Although they they yeah. reckon that the uh, the Maoris managed to get as far as um, South America before Columbus did. Um, and you know, wh where did the Aboriginals in Brazil come from? I mean, did you know that there are Aboriginals in Brazil? Yeah. Um, uh, and, they, and they all had the same, um, you know, mathematical um, system for their, for their calendar and for, and for the movement of the stars. I mean, like, how, where did that come from? I, I, I genuinely think that you, you, we lost a type of intelligence that isn't, doesn't fit our brain now. When you say intelligence, it's like what I was talking about, the scientists and the atheists. They're not, they're nothing to do with, having a clever brain is nothing to do with being right. inter, inter, uh, in spiritually, intellectual or emotionally. Right. To me, emotionally, they're half retarded. I mean, they're level yeah. one people. You can remember a lot and you can regurgitate other people's work and things like that. But your brain is set up on stage one. So it's silly talking to them about spirituality because they're designed to be fixing bones and healing cats and things like that. So it's weird that people have sort of pushed those people together. But the... It's that there was a type of spirituality or intelligence that was around that was gone away, and I don't know why, obviously, but it's like this is what I'm saying about people that are spiritual that sit there that could change the planet, but they have to start. But it's almost like it's built into the system that if you are that emotionally mature, there's no point walking into a playground of children and saying, Right, sit down, I'm going to teach you about long term marriage or divorce. Yeah. It's not the, the, the thing isn't there yet, but. It has started to happen because I didn't want to talk about anything to do with spirituality. I didn't want, I was thinking the time ain't right. It's not me. I'm a bloody child compared to people I know. But I thought maybe I'm gobby enough to not care. So at least if I act as cotton fodder to talk about certain things when I can, um, other people will then start to speak up. But I realize, oh, you've got to start the ball rolling and be mocked and laughed at and talk stupid. But it's there. It's sat there waiting for people to talk about it. Now, the only reason I did put spirituality into the personal development magazine is the first thing. And we've never had a conversation about spirituality. I don't, it's yeah. the least thing I talk about because I'm not ready yet. But it's sat there waiting. And I only started talking about it because of I started to see the signs. I thought, when did it first start? Well, you got sort of yoga because you can't until you start sitting still. You're not going to get to that emotional and spiritual intelligence. It's not going to happen. You can't teach it. You can't read the book and it's going to be great. You need to sit still because it's inside you. It's all there already. Um, and then you had the things with the ayahuasca that started coming out. And people would be saying stuff about ayahuasca that they'd taken. I thought, that's not like a trip. They're saying things they shouldn't know. And then I was like, holy shit. And over the last 10 years... Well, I've been studying people that said things, businessmen and yeah. journalists that work for NBC and they go over there and they quit their job because they had this experience on this ayahuasca. And there's something about chemicals and plants that are opening people's minds. And I'm telling you, they're all saying things that they shouldn't know. It's not this random thing about us. Well, do, do you think it's do you think it's enlightening them or do you think yes. that it's just created a physical no, transformation that has put aside 
uh, one element, one side of their brain that was stressing about something else and opened them up something, something yeah. else. So not unlike culture taking, has said they, to you the answers are outside. And it sounds very cliche to say, no, it's inside. Because some people have had very bad experience on ayahuasca. Oh, very yeah, but bad. then there is, see, the, it's a complication of people's biology. You know, it, it can push you over the edge. But there's certain, that it's sat there now. It's like when, you know, science said you know, the, the, the earth was flat at one point because yeah. how would it make sense? The water would fall off the end. It has to be gods and things right. like that. But it's only because you don't know about gravity and things like that. Spirituality sat there, but because there's nothing to experiment with it yet, um, the, the, it's, but it's there but, but because we can't see it as such and only certain people have connections to it it's like we're just jumping around all over the place but people have to know these people are out there yeah but people don't you think that people learn things as they do there, there's an old expression that uh, uh, God has revealed to you and as you need as you are capable of understanding yeah. so therefore if someone isn't getting it or you think they're never going to, they probably don't need to at this point. They, they yeah, well, will funny enough, with the ayahuasca, to. they say, like, some people don't do it. You said, because yes. I've never felt the need to. If you feel the need to, it's sort of like it's inbuilt in the system that you'd want to. And there's a, a theory as well that no one is actually born with the soul. You earn one over time. You yeah. develop one. Yeah. I think I think the brain is like um, a software um, program where you, you when you pay for a bit of, uh, a bit of software, it, it un, unwraps that bit. And I think that's the way that people's consciousness works, is that the knowledge is in there, and this is why ayahuasca um, liberates that, is because it's, it's, it's unlocking things in your brain that you've had locked. It's about perception, right? Yeah. And as you unlock these, these, these points of information in your brain, you kind of pay up for the, the upgrade in the package, stuff yeah. pops into your mind. And I found but, this over the last 10 years, is that, is that I'll, just something, I'll just know something suddenly that's come from absolutely nowhere, and I go... I bet that's connected to that, and I'll, look, I'll, I'll kind of Google it, and blow me down. It is, and I mean, don't you find that happens? You just yeah. like you make these kind of leaps in um, connectivity well, is it because you're just, but you're open to that. Yes, you're open. To no, that's that. absolutely why. Yeah, like I remember the first time I was tripping on acid university and all our mates we would do it and we'd go around and it just i just remember it making me think really really deeply about mm. some stuff now i had some friends who would just go off and blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and and having the time of their lives and come back covered in paint or mustard or whatever and <laughs> uh but i also had a, a buddy of mine and he was he was a pretty sharp guy and he had been a philosophy major one time and we used to sit and have these most intense conversations about things and not that i actually knew anything but i suddenly what i realized i was becoming more receptive to things i was opening up and yeah. receptive to new ideas and then really able to yeah, analyze it goes back and to the different them. levels of people if you go and do yes. that to somebody who's a moron and he's an idiot nothing's yes. going to happen right but some people they're they're, they're ready for that sort of thing right but like what you've gone back to saying like i realized when i was younger because i was getting my spiritual i didn't know what i was thinking spirituality was getting confused with other things and i was always looking at things and i knew about psychology because i used to listen to radio programs of like eight nine ten and things were going on at the family home and i started to realize oh psychology is being played out here but i certainly realized oh like i started guessing the future which yeah. is not sight it's nothing and then it happened again and over there and then people and then I was in nightclubs and I'd be seeing things and but not knowing what I was seeing I couldn't fucking think, figure it out why am I seeing things and then I read oh my I've got pattern recognition software that it sort of it, it goes ahead of like the, the mammal part of me something's fig working on it behind the scenes and I start to filter it down and filter it down till my 30s I, I was realizing that 
what we was talking about, you um, you recognise in certain things, and what the ayahuasca does and it releases you. It's like you ha that old saying of you have to remove yourself, and ayahuasca is supposed to be like yeah. the ego remover, right. and it allows you to think properly. And a lot of people that are taking the ayahuasca had always said like you're battling to hold, stay in control, but it's laughing at you. It's saying look, you're not in control. Just let right. that thing go because you're trying to hold on with your eight brains. Dead. It sounds that's exactly like no, that's, my that's thing the key. Was, that's it, the key. That, but that's yeah. exactly, and it goes back to like the the. The first article I wrote for the magazine, The Wisdom Within Silence, that's where the, the inte intelligence is. It's in the nothing. It's in the silence. And I started to get, over the last two years, because I do a lot of work like on my own, is like, obviously, you've got the ape part of your brain, the, main, the mammal yeah. part, which I, in my 20s, I realized was there. And I was trying to force it away with sex and drug and feelings and anything that tried to override what I was feeling. But it was fighting me all the time. Like, the, your biology is fighting to hold you down. And you have to remove that. And then I thought, oh, but I'm still acting impulsively and doing that. But I don't. I know I'm doing it. And then I realized, okay, the subconscious now is about 25, 24, 25. I realized, oh, stuff I've learned. Why do I like certain foods? Why do I like certain colors? Why do I like certain music? Why do people like certain things? And I thought, okay, the subconscious is there. So you've got to handle that now. Forget the impulse and the blah and the anger and I like this and that. The subconscious is then dictating things that you can't see. But you're behind that. That's you, but it's covered up with all these other things. And then there's a fourth one behind that that I'm trying to figure out now, which is that other level. But the third, the third one's you. That's you that's been around time. Chronology is irrelevant. Uh -huh. um, you know, when people would say, how long about me putting the magazine together and the stress? I said, stress is just learned behavior. You've learned that. Same way sort of family basically tribe you've learned that behavior when you have all these things imposed on you about family and protecting people that the me and mine and house and having a house and me and mine you've all learned all that when you right. only know it when you haven't had it and then you realize oh those people have learned to that they've learned to have the family and you've learned to have people when i put the magazine together and i said you used to go and knock on the offices of ceos and say can you help me i didn't know you had to learn an appointment but i hadn't learned it so you but those rules that you think of hierarchy and ego and i should listen to him and i shouldn't listen to him and i don't say sod all about the spirituality sort of style of stuff because i know that while i'm still alive and i say stuff people's ego kicks in straight away well who are you to say that and why blah 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 but when people die the ego isn't involved then people listen it's a weird thing we've got on our heads even an intelligent person oh, oh, it was interesting what you said about um losing yourself in sex and drugs and distractions like that at what point did you realize that you were self early 20s self-medicating yeah early to... 20s i knew that i'm just trying to get through life now I don't give a shit about spirituality the world isn't fitting how i thought it didn't make sense to what I knew was right. So I just thought, but at, what, it. But at what point did you realize why you were doing it? I mean, I mean early 20s. I don't, really. I don't mean realizing what you were doing, but realizing why you were doing it. I didn't know what it. I was because I, to be. I, I know lots of people who are intensely spiritual, yeah. who have had a life of intense self-medication and running away from it because it's, it's like, yeah, it's just trying to switch that off. When it's, you have problems, because, because once, once you, and I think, you know, there's a conversation around fear as well, because um, a lot of people are frightened of the implication of all this sort of stuff, because um, if, if you face up to it, then you're having to challenge your own belief system, which a lot of people don't want to do because it's yeah. too much to, well, to think about. That's fear, but, it's, it's, but the self-medicators, and there are, you know, there have been lots of us, um, do it because they're just trying to shut off a natural spirituality and depth and voice that they're, they're trying, they're to, trying, shut off trying to shut off an art question that they don't know the answer so when i'd see people at school or even young people people in clubs and they were troublesome 
I was saying, right, he's not a troublemaker. He's very intelligent. He just doesn't know the world. What's happening is he's very intelligent, but the world, the, what he's getting back is wrong. Everything that the world's showing him is wrong, but he doesn't know that he's actually very intelligent. Like, so you could go back yeah. to school, you've got a troublemaker. So what he's actually, you could use comedians as an example, stand-up comedians. They're at school, you have to be very intelligent to be stand-up comedian. You have to yeah. see the world and absorb it. When you're at school, you're a troublemaker. But actually, they're right. The world around them is wrong. But you can't filter that out. You can't get that into your head. So what you do is you battle, you battle, you battle. The world is just constantly family, friends, the society, TV is telling you everything. You just, But you've got no answers to the, question, the thing in your head. So what you do is go, I can't deal with this. I ain't getting a fucking nine-to-five job. I ain't doing that because you're trying to enslave. It's inbuilt in me to know that you're wrong. When I was at school, I couldn't read, so I didn't know I couldn't read. I didn't know you couldn't read like me. I just looked at things, didn't do the work you did. That was it. No dyslexia. Nobody knew anything about that. But I, I knew what I saw, and because of the home life, and I thought I was at the bottom of barrel in human. But nobody had ever felt them as bad as me in history. That's what I thought. But I, I knew that they, what they were teaching was wrong. It didn't fit with how I felt. Like I knew I was at the bottom of the barrel. But you're wrong. You telling me this, you telling me that. Something inside me that I didn't even have that statement in my head was saying, this is all wrong. You're all lying to You're fortunate, though, because for a lot of people, they never tweak the fact that um, they never analyse. But this is why I say the spiritual thing just sort of had to be in there. The the abuse, really. Yeah, well, again, that, that was just... Now, what if I was at the first level? And I just went, fuck you, fuck you, beat the woman up, do the thing. But well, it's random there. stuff. It's no different. And I say this all the time when, because ego will get involved when you start talking about spirituality and knowing certain things. People's brains just do that. But if I said, okay, I might have been eight and 10, I was a young spiritual kid. People say, oh, but you think you know this and it snowballed. So now you think you know this. I say, okay, what if I was eight years old and I happened to be five foot two? It's just my biology was just that. Yeah, but I would look at a basketball player and go, fuck him, he's no better than me. You go, well, he's just had that thing in him that happened to make him look like, be like that. But when it's inside the brain, suddenly ego's involved because you're saying you're more intelligent. But all that happened, there was something special there from a young age, plus that happened to be in a situation that was very sort of emotive. A lot of stressful things were happening. So I started to look at it in a weird way. So then that started the ball rolling at 10 you know, it's sort of like why yeah. I thought Muhammad Ali was such a good boxer. because they, they would analyse his fights and see him throwing a punch to defend something that was being thrown at him at the same time. Yeah. It's because he'd been doing it for so long. He'd had like 200 amateur fights that his brain knew what was happening before it happened. But then it just snowballed as a kid. So by the time I got to school, I did not believe the whole world around me. I knew. I remember sitting in a class with a teacher talking to me about Tutankhamun. And I can remember thinking... You weren't there. This is bullshit. You're just a person who's saying something out of a book. Not, I didn't even have that sentence in my head, but I remember thinking, you're just a person. Why are you telling me something you've got no contact with? It doesn't make any sense. Like I, I had such little trust in them. It sort of sounds like arrogance, but at the same time, I thought I was a piece of shit. I thought I was at the bottom of the I, barrel. No, I still struggle with that now. When, when I, I find it very difficult sitting in a seminar where someone's talking at me and right. kind of, and you sort of think they're just giving you information. I mean, for me... Anyone who talks from the heart is talking in an inspirational way and, and it feels like they're coming up with something new no, that's man, coming I from the heart. That hurts my soul. If I, yeah. I, somebody saw, said, uh, sent me something about two years ago and he said, oh, look, this guy's doing this personal development thing. He said, look, you're going to hate him because I, I can't be around any of that. So I looked at it and he came in. And again, my pattern recognition, 
everything was from the way his feet were moving to the what he was wearing. He had the pink shirt on. He came in. And he, you know when you see people doing presentations and you see the hand movements that they've been taught? Yeah. And yes. I and me and you. Yeah. And yeah, it's a all, and he, that's, that's, he had like yeah. rock music coming in like he thought he was Anthony Robbins. Yeah. But he was, and it was in a church. <laughs> and it was a nice looking English guy, you know. And he's walking and he was trying to create this thing. And it was like, no, stop. And he's doing this and me and yeah, get up, stand. And I was thinking, oh God, what are you doing? But again, it's that he's here and he's trying to present himself as having the emotional intelligence of there. Mm. So this is why I don't have anything to do. There's a guy who wanted to come on here, a, especially a world-renowned spiritualist. He's got this big PR company. And I said, no. I said, because I looked at him for three seconds. I said, no, he's delusional. He's probably quite intelligent, but he's just managed to do stupid stuff and he can probably talk very well, but he's nothing. He's empty. He's, mm-hmm. he, like, he doesn't even know himself. He's probably deluded himself, which is the worst thing you get with psychics where they start to believe They'll make things. a great podcast. No, actually. no, I said, I don't want nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, but the, the personal development thing, same thing. I just don't have nothing to do with it because the instant I see it, I see the whole because I have to know where you started from, where you got to, and how you got there. There's no point me telling me because you get a lot of these internet millionaire guys who start becoming life coaches, and you go, you started at 95% of the way up the ladder. You've got no right to be talking about anything to do with that. You're a business person because you have to go right down to the bottom and low down the ladder. All this, the teaching is at the bottom of the ladder, and very few people get to that bottom where you had no family, couldn't read, no money. That you, because you don't come out of that you just become a junkie usually but nobody's down the bottom teaching all the shit that's like no this is what this means this is what that means but my like I've, on this podcast I've had arguments with like when things don't add up and people try to say things or and I go no you're, you're, you're not seeing what you're saying the opinion is based on an ape it's not based on anything else and you try you have to fight against that thing so um, I think uh, on the first podcast we did I was talking about the girl in uh, India that got raped uh, by the three guys and killed, the young girl, and there was a big protest about it. Um, And I was watching the documentary and I could feel that thing again coming in where I tried to train myself, where they were talking to the three guys that did it and the hate and what you'd listen to, what they did to her. It wasn't just like a rape, it was horrific. And I wanted to hate them. Like I could feel that in me, like if they were there, the doorman, the bouncer, the the punches to the face that I've taken. I'm trying to remember all that. And I said, but you have, this is what I said to you, Jenny. I said, you have to, because she was just, well, just kill them. And I said, no, that you've learned nothing there. You've just, you've bought into the evil of the world. You've gone, yeah, just get rid of them. I said, that changes nothing. That evil still sat, sits there. You don't hate the face of that evil. You remove him. And you say, what created all that? What created him to be like that? There's a something behind there. So hate that fucking thing. You don't hate that kid because you take him out and stick him in, you know, Beverly yeah, Hills, yeah, right. it didn't happen. But telling people, the, the thing about killing people solves nothing. It makes apes feel better. I said, you need to take that person, fucking keep them alive for the rest of the life and study them and figure out what went into it and him and then somebody else and somebody else. And over 50 years, we get a, yeah. a picture of what's that thing behind the human being that's, and then attack that. But apes, kill him, get rid of it. Oh, there's another one. You solve nothing. And you bought into the death because the evil wants that to happen. It wants another death. It wants another death. So you're buying into it rather than going, I can't react. That's well, why it's a, it's families can't... a response to self-preservation. Too. Yeah, the we ape, though. It's that thing, yes. that bloody ape that controls everything. You've got to, you've got to get rid of that, man, because... Then you've got the subconscious, but you're behind that. You that's always there, that the time is irrelevant, is, is always there. And when I said about putting the magazine together, it's taking so long... It didn't matter. The fact of it happening 
and the story of how it happened that stays longer me i'm irrelevant now i'm just there at the, the front of it but that thing of people have chronology and time that you've learned like some people ask me how old you are i got a fucking clue and i'm late 30s but i never celebrated those i wasn't trained for that to be an important day it's as if you might as well say to me when was the first time you went swimming let's celebrate that day it's of no importance to me age because you've learned that and i think now that when you learn those things about what age you are we all know you, how old you feel and what you should be doing. I talk, talk to people at all different ages and you say, there's no age. You've fucking learnt this chronology, man. So you, there's no you 10 years ago. That 10-year-old is not you. It hasn't, the biology isn't the same. The bones aren't there. The muscle isn't there. That, the, the teeth, everything's gone. But we have this weird thing of me and my and who I am. Say, so You're nothing. You just happen to be here at the time. Your life is today forward. Anything back you might as well refer to a movie. It's just electrical impulses. And you holding on to that, me and where I come from and what my parents did and all that, you've trained yourself of what your future can be. But you have to fucking let it all go and say... It's a very interesting process if you remove the ego. I mean, like you're saying about not being able to... But even the word ego sounds bad. It's like literally you've trained yourself into who you are. Moving it sounds good. Yeah. And it's it's the basis. I mean, I I, uh, trained as a Reiki practitioner five years ago and a shamanic healer um, and, st- and you know do it every day now and um, the the most difficult thing was removing your ego because without you know with the with the ego in the way you can't you can't work right and, and when you when you, you when you switch that off and you move it to one side everything starts to happen but it, the problem is every the whole planet everything you've ever been taught from age family being around you you and your tribe your house that you own all these that like I, it's annoys me that, like, I, 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 it sounds like like I'm hubristic, but when I talk to people about what age they are, and they talk about themselves as like this life before, and say, your life is now going forward. So whatever you want you do with your life, it's today going forward. This thing you keep referring to, it's not there. You've imagined it's not you. Yeah, but hasn't it influenced you there now? Sorry? Has it influenced you yeah, there but, now? Yeah, but That's this is all esoteric answer. stuff. So, okay, yeah, yeah, my dad's biology, blah, 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 and all that. But your life isn't... From one to a hundred, it's today. You, ten years ago, it's not you. But you told, you've taught me and the memories of looking at that. It's no bloody relevance to you whatsoever. It does not. Why do you have this thing that you and that you're dragging your bloody past around with wherever you go? Well, I can only go down that road because I've got all this shit with me. Um, people want to change their life. First thing I say to people, how much are you willing to change if you want to change your life? Because they've got these bloody great suitcases that they spend their lives trying to get through the door. And you go, until you let it go, it's not going to happen. But they don't want to hear that. They want to, well, tell me what I can do to squeeze it through. No, you've got to drop shit. And people all have big parts of their personality because I realise my fitness, my health, my nutrition, learning about culture, learning about people, learning about history, try to plug those gaps. So I've got no insecurities everywhere because this is the other thing people don't realise everything's cross-connected everything and if you've got one big gap in your life that pulls everything else down and you have to you know, drag it with you so you have to fix everything everything has to be fixed because everything's cross-connected this is what the problem with scientists if we could get back to a point where if they did have that type of intelligence where scientists were the spiritual people because knowing that everything's cross-connected works in your favor if you're just a scientist and you've only sat in the thing and done that right. you are massively retarded to the rest of the world because you only you don't realize that that thing over there affects that thing over there me working in security affected me working in a removal firm reflect reflected well on things that i've done in fitness which then taught me stuff about myself to do with the, the magazine to do it's all connected but when somebody's just done that 
It's like, oh man, you're, to me that's retardation. You've no idea how everything's connected. And now everything benefits the other thing that you do. But people have just done that. It's a massive, massive, so what's massive the, problem. So what's the remedy? What's the process? <sighs> do you know what it is? It's actually not... It's your life. Like, the, I think, you, firstly, you shouldn't study... Unless you're in the sciences, you shouldn't be studying soddle until you're 25. Because you don't know what you're bloody doing. You, you, you're not you. And you're setting up the adult you... That has nothing to do with you in the future and telling them, right, this is what you're going to do in the future. And half the people then leads to depression because now you're up the top of the ladder and you've got the house up there and you've got the car and you're saying, well, you actually want to be an actress rather than in finance. How many people do you think climb back down that ladder back to poverty and then go, right, I'm going to start again? When you've got family and kids, they don't. But then the, the, the antidepressants kick in and now they're trying to manage the stress. Because I say stress is what happens when you don't um, um, absorb what's the reality of what you're around. Because if you hate something... you Better either plan to get out or plan to love it. But when you go, I hate my life now, and I'm going to try. I'm just, but I'm going to stick with it. But I'm just going to carry on hating well, it. Then you need medicine. Yes, I know. When I did the, uh, I did the um, uh, Camino de Santiago de Compostela. Though it's a pilgrimage walk across northern Spain uh, for my fiftieth, and I met people uh, from around the world who were doing this walk. It's really just, it's a walk. That's all it is. And you follow this trail based on, uh, that's supposedly based on ancient pilgrimage going back to the, the Apostle St. James. And the way is marked with uh, little yellow arrows marked on trees or scallops, which is the symbol. And that's how you find your path all the way through. And uh, it, this pilgrimage had gone on for nearly a thousand years, and then it fell out of favor. And then when Franco uh, took over Spain, his fascist government really cracked down on it. And it was one priest who decided to uh, reinvigorate this walk by taking a can of paint and following the walk and putting these yellow arrows. And a militiaman stopped them and said, what do you think you're doing? He said, I'm starting a revolution. And this reinv uh, reinvigorating this, this, this walk has attracted people from around the world just to simply go on this walk. And the best thing I found about it is that you meet people, of course, from around the world who converge and you just walk with people. You're, out of, you're away from Wi-Fi, away from everything else. And you simply walk with people and you commune with them and you talk with them, you merge and then you, then you separate and then you go on. And everybody's treated like a pilgrim and it's all really... Uh, you, I find some people do it just for the health benefit of walking. Some people do it uh, for a more, more spiritual enlightenment. Some do it because they're, they're Catholic and very religious because they all it. Um, what I found more than anything for me is that... Um, it reconfirmed my faith in humanity because you meet people along the way who are just genuinely kind and people offering you food and water, people leaving water and food yeah, for each yeah. other and help each other. And then uh, when I finish, you finish in, in Santiago, uh, Spain, but you can continue on to a place called the end of the earth. Finish today. Finish today. It's, you can walk to the end of the earth because it's the westernmost point of continental Europe. And they actually did think it was the end of the earth until Columbus landed in the Americas. And it's a cliff, and at the cliff are the Piedras de Muertes, the rocks of death, because it is just a cliff and, and, and such. At the end of the earth, I met people who had done this walk, met other people, and said, I'm not going back home. I'm not going back yeah, to, to what I had. And they opened up a hostel to rent out rooms for other pilgrims. I met this guy, kind of reminds me of you, 
who I, I told you this. I walked yeah, in this little see. taverna. I wanted to get something to eat. And I saw this little this little taverna. It was a guy cooking at the uh, uh, at the grill, and there was not a stick of furniture except for one table there. And I got to talk to this guy, and he had only arrived three months before I did. He had done this walk, and he said that uh, when he got there, he decided he wasn't going to go back to France. He was from France, and he found this empty space, found out who the owner was, and said, can I open up my own little taverna there, my own little grill? The guy's like, if you can do it, do it. He convinced this guy with no money to give him down. This place was empty. Convinced this guy he had no money to start because I will make money and I will pay you rent on it if you believe I can do it. And yeah. the guy said, fine. He convinced him. So he did. And he was making, he's cooking all the food himself. And then he pointed over to that table. You see that table there? And I said, yeah, because I'm building all the furniture too. One stick at a time. Yeah. And I got to talking to this guy. I found it quite fascinating. And while we were talking, he told me when he was 18, he uh, was taking his gap year and decided to go to India. It was the cheapest place he could afford to fly to. And he was walking through the streets of Calcutta and he heard some woman calling to go, hey, you, 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 you're big and strong. Come and help me. And he turned around. He saw this old lady picking somebody up off the ground. He thought this person had fallen. And when he went over there, who was it but Mother Teresa? And he was telling this. He said, she said, come over here and help me pick this person up. You're big and strong. And he did. And he was only supposed to be traveling through there for about a week. He ended up staying for about six months working with her. And he went back again every year for three years. And he showed me a picture. He's like, yeah, he carries it in a pocket. Him and Mother Teresa. <laughs> and I met people like this. And these were ordinary people. Yeah. People who just... I stayed in a... Uh, it was formerly a 12th century monastery. They had been taken over as a communal living space uh, by some people because I was just looking for a place to sleep and came upon this uh, monastery, assuming that it was run by a religious order. And instead, this lady answered the door. And the first word out of her mouth, the first word I thought out of a lot of people's mouths were not hello, but have you eaten? Oh, really? And I said, yeah. actually, no, I haven't. I hadn't thought about it. And she went, she whipped up this big vegetarian meal. Her second question was, you're going to stay for breakfast, aren't you? And I hadn't thought of that either. She never asked me for a penny. And then one by one, people started coming out of their rooms all saying hello and such. And I met people who, turns out they've been running this sort of commune for a couple of decades, since the 70s. And I met people who had just arrived three weeks before me. I met some people who were there for three months. I met one guy who was there for about two and a half years. He was working at a corporate office in Dublin and arrived there and called up, said he wasn't going to go back. Everybody who lives there, they grow all their own food at their own orchard. And nobody has a list of chores. They just do things that need doing. Yeah, it fits in, things just fit into place. Yes, but do you understand? People came into that knowledge right into that enlightenment yeah. without expecting it yeah they were simply doing the walk like other people and these things were revealed to them yeah in a but way. this is what i'm saying so imagine you, if but you, you get you but what i get is you get, you get so stressed because you see people aren't getting it but i'm like they're not supposed to get it yet it's not ready they're no, not yeah, ready I mean, for it to be able the stress comes from me editing myself as i'm talking but what, what imagine if you ex, you knew that now at yeah 10 what, you're, you're, what good would have done you at 10? What no, would but you, you would that? then do things to implement these sort of things. Because you could say a Mother Teresa, or the, they're the same sort of people. They saw yeah. things different. When I was putting the magazine together, and I didn't know anybody, and I started to say, I'm going to do this thing, and I've got no money, no contact. You know what? The laugh, the people that felt bad for me, that was yeah. set, met with me and feel bad for me, that I didn't know I was like wasting years of my life. But I had to realize, oh, you come from this world that yeah. you don't see. You're like the ape. Okay? You just see contracts and people and blah, 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 because you haven't realized 
realised from looking at people long enough that yes. there are good people out there. And that also comes from me working 17 years in nightclubs, talking to surgeons, airline pilots, doctors, yeah. bin men, blah, blah, realising, oh, like, you're all normal. Like, you're all right. slightly perverted and slightly <laughs> this and slightly that and slightly mistrusting and slightly spiritual, but you're not and this and that. You're all a mix of everything. So when I see people and we've all got our professions and what we do, I was thinking, that's all bullshit. Like, you're all sort of lying to each other. We're all the same. So when I knew there was people that wanted to change things in certain industries, I could see that. But the people in the industry with magazines were going, you don't know what you're talking about, you can't do it. I was thinking, oh, you're all children. Like I said once, I met a woman who edited all the newspapers and she was like, oh, I don't let me say her name. Yeah. She was like 55. And she was... Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, don't worry, don't worry. She yeah, met okay. me and she was telling me she just worked in newspapers and I thought, oh, don't, I learned not to meet with people in newspapers because they're not into all this magazine. Right, somebody, right, right. And she'd done all this thing. And as I was talking to her... I suddenly realised, oh, this is a dinosaur I'm talking to. Like, I've come to you for advice. You don't know what you're talking about. You come from that world where it's going, it's going. She didn't know what podcasts were. She's just She was throwing big contract words at me, and I'm talking about doing stuff with no money. What type of people are going to work for no money? And as she was going, I remember the incident going, oh, she's like, she's like black and white. She's gone, like, she, and I'm sitting yeah. here trying to get advice from you, and you don't know what you're talking. Because I thought, oh, I know more than you because I've seen things longer. But how difficult is it, though? You have to realize you're, you're trying to get other people to see your vision, and people aren't. They've got blinders at her. They got yeah, their own yeah. agenda. You understand? Well, you can't. Okay, this is the well, thing. So you, the interesting point is, is if we picking up on your on your point, if we got eight year olds to ask the right questions, yeah. Um, the world would be an utterly different place. And if 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 the question we gave to eight-year-olds is what's your sole purpose and explain what that meant to them, it would be a very different world. And no one ever does. And I think that the huge problem, which is which is kind of a distillation of what you're saying, is we don't know the questions to to ask them. All all we do is we just give them information about right. um, this is how you do matriculation and this is how you do logarithms and you know. Um, but that sort of goes back Queen, to the Queen, problem Queen set Elizabeth up from lived this. in such and such time, which is of great interest. But it's it's not an answer to the question. And well, the, the, peop- the people who are educating them don't don't aren't educated with the right questions to ask. But we're not put in, in the yeah, head of eight year olds. And, and if they did. We'd have an utterly different. But we're not even planet. teaching them to ask questions. We're teaching no. them just to receive information. Yes. Well, didn't say the word education yeah. came from the word educatus, which means from to bring from within. Yeah. But it's literally flipped to yeah. listen to me. To bring without, yeah. But yeah. The, the, the when again when I stand back and I don't have, I don't know professional bodies and words. I just see what the system is, and when you've got education, I see emotional children. Yeah. Governing bodies, government, politicians trying to teach people but they're, they're excuse me we keep using the word retarded they don't know what they're doing so you're talking to somebody who doesn't really know about life trying to teach a system that filters our way down to somebody at the bottom why haven't you got a spiritual person at the top because you, why have you got somebody that's had a privileged life teaching things that then to get taught to them to do that to that one so then you get to a kid who should be out playing and experiencing life saying sit i mean if you just thought right the, the time when you've got most energy and they're cramming you into class, they sit still. Just that. Yeah. You, if an alien race, let's use that thing, you'd laugh. And that, I always say this, if you brought an alien, I, it's the only analogy I can use for people. Say, if an alien race come down now and said, you're going to take those kids when they should be out learning, bumping, grabbing sticks, and then watching them to see, right, he, he's always sitting in a group with kids and talking. That one's always building things. She's always playing there. That one's always in the grass. That should be the norm. 
So the, when I get frustrated, it's got, that should be the norm. That's not even specially intelligent. So when you go, I just see kids crammed in a class, I get to the point where I go, forget it. I don't want nothing to do with well, society. I can't even explain why. If I have to explain why, that's stupid. But that's the sort of joke. We're living in a joke. That's a joke to do something like that. So you can't have ch- children... And then you get kids that get pushed into crime and things because they've got a type of personality that doesn't fit with the broken system. And then they're forced to go, well, I don't know what this is, so I'll just do that. And it's all very crude stuff. Well, when I was um, teaching uh, high school equivalency classes to gang members in back in Chicago, and I was getting, uh, they were sent to me by the courts. And so if they were involved in gangs and, and first-time offenders, the court, and they hadn't graduated from high school, the courts would then send them as part of the condition of probation to get their high school equivalency. And what and it sounds like a noble idea. Okay, we're going to make sure that they go and get a high school diploma. But what I found I was up against were some who simply were not able to Learn. They mm. were they were at uh, they had a disadvantage or a learning disability, or were so conditioned to be within their gang that uh, it just wasn't an option. And what the courts failed to realize for many of them in gangs, getting at better educating yourself or trying to graduate from school could be a death sentence to them yeah, yeah. because it looks like you're trying to get out of the gang. And I remember, you know, I'd hand out the, the books that we would give them and on the way out, they'd be throwing them in the trash. And I used to be offended at first. And then I realized, no, they can't be seen taking books home from school. And you know what I mean? It's detrimental to, yeah. to their little corporation. Yeah, yeah. The system and, around them. and some, you know, in a sad way for some of them, uh, being in a gang selling drugs and doing that, uh, almost seemed like <clears throat> a better option for them because one, they were making more money than they'd ever make at a McDonald's. Two, they're up against systemic racism that isn't going to hire them in in uh, positions where they make that same kind of money anyway. And for some, again, uh, emotionally and, and behaviorally and in terms of and educationally, some were limited. They, they had a learning disability. They weren't going to learn yeah. beyond that. And, but they were making more money than I was. And so yeah, in a way, things. there was an element of protection. So I gave up being, I used to get very frustrated about it. I used to think I'm not getting through, I'm doing something wrong, or they just don't get, they don't appreciate all that until I finally realized that you cannot force a particular yeah, system yeah, yeah, on people. Yeah. They are surviving in a way that they know best. Yeah. And they're as enlightened as they need to be yeah. at that point. Yeah. And they don't have time to yeah. think about any uh, higher cause. They're people who actually live in, at the moment because any moment they can be killed. But people like that, I always found, like I would do, I don't know if I said before, like I would do experiments on people, man, when I was like, working <laughs> in nightclubs. That's all my life. I've probably always got 50 experiments going, even now. And one of them was I was trying to see, like I would do weird shit, man, like introduce a word into a sort of group of people yeah, right. seeing how long it took and then doing it with different cultures and different, seeing which culture took it and, one very thing that stuck in my head was where I realised that people that are that sort of gang mentality, they actually had very strong protective in this instincts. Yeah. They weren't bad. And you'd fix them by saying, look after that kid there. Not, don't trust him. You right. actually take somebody who's a trouble, mate, and say, right, look up. That's why right. they have dogs. Things, they, they've got protective instincts, well, but they're hidden behind this criminality thing where you don't try and teach them something. You say, now you are responsible for him yes. when we're walking away and suddenly see their personality change. So I'm going to protect this person. But when that's not there, when a family's not there, it goes to gangs. And once I was in a nightclub and I did this probably about four times, but one particularly, there was a kid that came in because I started to see that no matter what you said to a new doorman that started... 
they didn't listen. When you say, don't fight, don't do this, don't try and prove you're a tough guy, they instantly did. It was just yeah, built sure. and built on them. And I remember one kid came in, um, 20 years old. I saw it straight away. I saw me not listening 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, okay, I'm not, but anyway. And I started, he, he, I saw him do something. I thought, shit, this guy, I can't talk him out of this. He's, I'm talking against his biology. It's not going to work. So I started to call him because uh, he spoke to somebody once and I called him the negotiator in front of other people. Yeah. Oh, the negotiator. I sent the negotiator in to deal with it. And within three hours, his personality changed, which then he wasn't fighting anybody because I gave sure. him the brand of negotiator. Right. He didn't then run in and start hitting people because he got pride in the fact of thinking yeah. he has value now. Yeah. And that led on to, then he's pushed himself away from his own circle of friends because he was like, when he was coming, he would come in, he would start to talk to me like a man rather than try to show off to his mates. And then I saw his mates move away because he had grown up. Because yeah. now he was thought that everybody was looking at him like the negotiator. So I would send in, all boys. Yeah. I'd send him in to deal with things. And he would then think of himself as a person that talked, even though an hour before he was trying to fight. And it shocked me that that was the only time it happened in a day. And then I watched over his life. He, like I said, he pushed yeah. his own friends away because they were all idiots. Well, and he wanted to be known as that thing. And so talking about how do you change somebody, it's as simple as that, man. Well, the way I, um, I used to, when I first started teaching, I actually... I, I, I have to go. Oh, yeah, sorry, I have to mate, go too. I was teaching at a minimum security prison. And it was one of these tough love boot camp programs. A lot of, again, it was for first-time offenders and drug offenders. And for those drug offenders who, who had to go into this program as well, what they would do with them is they uh, would consider them babies. And they had a minder who was another uh, inmate who had only been there longer than they were. And they, the new inmate, uh, had to be led around by the older, by the uh, longer-term inmate, by the back of their collar everywhere, oh, like Jesus this, Christ. for 30 days everywhere, even while taking a piss. They had to be held oh, like Christ. this. Because they were considered an irresponsible baby okay. because they could not be trusted. And therefore, they had to be held around that. But part of the psychology behind it wasn't just to get it through to this, this person who has to be stripped down to their basics, to be a baby and start all over again and earn trust. But it was teaching the other person. Yeah. To be responsible. Yeah. You're responsible for this baby now. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go Is with it, that one. <laughs> it was, it shocked doing. me at first. It was really shocking because if you were caught without your buddy or right, minder, yeah. they would rebook you. They would tackle you and cuff you and bring you into a room and photograph you. would start all over again. But I realized that the, the point of it was to uh, help the other guy, not just the new guy, but the other guy by giving that person say you're responsible yeah, for works, him. I'm telling you. Um, Simon. I have to go as well. So, so. Have you got three minutes or can you? Right. You've got a book. I have. The Exorcist. Well, that's not the word, but the, 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 the name of it. Uh, the Accident. The Accidental um, Wizard. Was, oh, Exorcist. Oh, cool. Where do I get the word book. Exorcist from? I have, it's a, one I have of a his, website. Oh, the Exorcist right. is one of your Desert what? Island downloads. It Star Wars, The Exorcist, <laughs> and what's the third one? 2001. 2001 Space Odyssey. There yeah. you go. Um, See, I do my research. The, the book. <laughs> the book. Tell us about it. Um, well, there are two, but the, right. the, the, the first one was The Accidental Wizard, which was a autobiography about where I'd got up to in 2008. Oh, that was... And the, it was the, about, okay. about my journey um, up to that point, travelling the world and becoming aware spiritually and documenting a lot of the information that I was getting because I was kind of just like rabbiting like a crazy person because yeah. I was getting so much information. <laughs> and that, I wrote that book by what they call... I mean, it felt like automatic writing. But yeah. I wrote it yeah. in one draft 
without without really stopping and reflecting on it. I just, just wrote it out. down, yeah. and, and it's the weirdest experience. And if if you've done it, um, you either write total garbage or you write something that is is of interest to somebody. Yeah. And uh, I hardly made any changes to it apart from you know where I'd use the wrong tense or something like that. Sure. I didn't change the sense. There was a truth to it. It, it just yeah. came out in in a flow, which was the weirdest experience, and. Um, it's been out for um, a few years now. Uh, it's, it's kind of made me a lot of friends because um, all sorts of people from all over the world have, have bought it and then have kind of gotten contacts and um, some of them have been the most interesting people and we've become good buddies and we've right. met up and talked on things and they've invited me to go and do things and you know vice versa. So it's a great way of making um, Well, it's contacts. funny, whenever you open one door, there's always a few behind it that you can't sure. see yet. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 um, um, it was half, half of it was, uh, stuff that happened to me, um, which, and I did it like a diary. So it's, it's kind of quite chatty. It's very easy to read. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a heavy book, yeah. you know, it's just like me talking to you. Yeah. Um, and, and because I've spent 20 years being, um, having to be, uh, censored and edited on what I write and controlled on what I write and having to say the things I don't really want to say. It was really um, a great release because I just said exactly what I wanted to say. I mean, a really big publisher wanted to publish it and and he but he said you know we have to get a ghostwriter and rewrite it i said well that's not going to work for me he said i thought you'd say that and i said so i'm i'm I'm, I'm turning you down it sounds mad but i just i've got to do it this way and he said no i I respect that and this this is your first book yeah so your second book yeah is it a follow-on it's not not the next stage no something else no the 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 next stage is going to be the book i'm going to write now which is going to be the accidental exorcist which Uh is going to be a kind of a um a case study thing uh, well, it's going to be sort of like the background of how how I started doing exorcisms and why, and why they work and how they work, which is quite a challenge to explain. But then lots of um, chapters on individual people that I've met and their kind of situation because they're all fantastic stories. So I'm going I'm going to write. It's going to be called the Accidental um, Exorcist, and that that's going to be um, a sort of uh, a, a person by person chapter um look at real people that i've helped over the last cool. five years right and so when do you think that's going to be completed when i've written it which I <laughs> haven't done it. it's in my head at the moment but it, i mean it's it's, it's it, it'll be it'll be a matter of months oh there really yeah, yeah it'll be quick it'll be quick and then i've got my my um my website the accidental exorcist for um, my um, activities as an exorcist, which I've just launched just over the last few weeks. Oh, okay, right, yes. And, and the, the idea was, um, it, it's, I mean, it is kind of, it can be pretty full-on and scary and weird and disruptive and things actually happen. Like um, I had one client who said that every time she woke up at night, there was a sort of like a little goblin on the bed next to her. And having spoken to her, I don't think she's a delusional nut. Um, and I haven't, I haven't actually seen it, but she was convinced she'd seen it. But what I have seen are, I've been to see clients, and it's, it's, it is like, it's like The Conjuring. It is like one of those Hollywood movies sure. where there's a lot more truth in all that kind of slightly hysterical hyperbole in those films than, 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 you, than you think. I mean, like, I've been into houses where a woman has been complaining about um, every time she leaves her bedroom, when she comes back in, all her shoes are piled up in the middle of the floor. Mm-hmm. And it actually happened while I was there. We went up, she said, look, here's my room, all tidy, there it is. We went downstairs, had a chat, came back upstairs. The shoes were all piled up. There was nobody else in the house. 
Um, the only way it could have happened was by some sort of um, paranormal I noticed um, uh, somebody they, they kept smelling burning yeah straight out yeah. nothing said there's something here and I said why he said oh, over the years I figured out that when I get that burn I smell that burning there's something did I tell you my first flat here and I lived in Earl's Court was haunted um, it was a two bedroom flat uh, flat made in one bedroom and my bedroom was actually a nice one on a balcony I couldn't sleep in the bed every time I slept in that bed I used to get nightmares and so I used to sleep on the sofa and I didn't mind sleeping on the sofa because the big screen TV in the living room there but I would get woken up at least twice a week at the same time around 3.15 a.m. and I would hear somebody pushing on the wall that was the dividing wall, the hallway. So somebody out in the hallway pushing on the wall where the, my sofa was, so I was just in my head. And it used to wake me up. And I would hear the floor creaking in the hallway, and i go out and look. And this is a big old Victorian uh, end-of-terrace house. And uh, this went on for quite a long time. And finally, I asked my landlord one day, an old Italian guy who owned the property since 1970, I said, Giovanni, I'm just curious, did anybody ever die in my place. Oh, no, no. I said, oh, wait a minute. There was one guy. I said, what one guy? Ah, some guy. Yeah, he died. I said, when? He said, like 1972 or 73. He says, after my place. I said, he did? What happened? He said, no, he died. He said, die. And I'm like, well, how old was he? Ah, I'm not too old. About your age. <laughs> and I That's said, nice. what happened? Ah, let me see. He says, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one day his friend comes and says, I don't see him for a long time. And so, uh, uh, we opened the door to go find him. We found him dead. I said, dead where? He goes, dead, dead in the bed, just in the bed. I said, in that second bedroom with the balcony. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, dead, dead in the bed. And I said, okay, because someone keeps coming. I hear someone in the hallway pushing on, I think, what I think is the wall, you know, and I hear it in the same spot all the time. Ah, he says, it's probably him. He think he's coming home. He's probably used to do a lot of drugs and all of that. He don't know. He gets, and I said, but why wouldn't he try the door? Why is he pushing on the wall? Oh, oh he said, there. we moved the door. He said, we moved <laughs> the door like in 1978. I said, there was a door that goes in. And, when, and this is, I had never even seen this before. I walked back in my flat. I took a lamp and I shined it on the wall. And I could then see the plaster outline of what had once yeah, been yeah, the door. Yeah. I said, well, I don't know. This is really bothering me. I said, does, does this guy have a name? He said, yeah, his name was Neil. Neil. Okay, my ghost is Neil. I said, just tell him. You tell him. You tell him. Go away. Go away. You don't live here no more. And so, <laughs> no. I, so the next time I heard it, I did. I went out in the hallway. I said, Neil, you don't live here anymore. You need to go to the light. Jesus. Don't bother me anymore because you don't live here. And the next day, a package arrived. In the lobby, addressed to someone named Neil. Now, there are only three flaps in the whole building. And I know the person below me was not a Neil. I know my landlord is not Neil. I'm not Neil. But this package was there, and I never touched it. I wouldn't open it. And then, by the end of the week, it was gone. Somebody had taken it or maybe put it back in the, the post office or what. I don't know. But it never happened again. That person's that never bothered me again. But I checked in the bedroom. I flipped the mattress over, and I saw a big stain on the mattress, and I confronted Giovanni about it. I said, you never changed a fucking mattress, <laughs> did you? Somebody died on it, you just flipped the mattress. <laughs> oh, Cheap son of a bitch. <laughs> hey, hey, what do you want me to do? I don't know. Oh, Christ. Oh, anyway. Uh, listen, Simon, thank you for your notes. went on for a lot longer. Um, 
We'd love to have you back on. Yes, in definitely. A couple of months because there's a few things I wanted to talk to you about as well. Um, or when you, you know, got the book coming out, books or something. as well. Yeah, for sure. There's a million questions I want to ask you. Which, like I said, we didn't have time even with the two hours we did. But um, listen, thank you very much for coming down here. Pleasure. And, uh, yeah. So we can have you back on. Yeah, I'd love uh, to. Got yeah. his word on that now. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Antonio. Thanks, you good. Right. Cheers. Well, okay, thank cheers. Bye bye. Shadows on the wall And the bartender screams That's cold I'm in the corner With my head in the dream To myself I quietly think So many things to get you off And I cough and I scoff And take another drag of my cigarette And I don't mind If the sun don't shine Body weather suits me fine Pour another glass of wine On the bar tonight I think I'll be a superstar 